0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. It's just going to be me today hosting the show, but we have a very special guest, a great journalist and writer I've been speaking a lot with recently. His name is Daniel Wright, and he is a writer for Shadowproof.com, which is sort of the new version of Fire Dog Lake. If anybody out there is familiar with Fire Dog Lake, they did a lot of great, crucial journalism, sort of from a left perspective, um, for years and years, and now Shadow Proof is taking its place. And I recommend everybody go to Shadowproof. Um, even donate if you can. They have a, even a new section up on the website called New Cold War sort of tracking a lot of the Russia, Syria news coming out. And it's, it's all from a really intelligent perspective. So please go check that out. Uh, Daniel Wright is in charge of the bullpen at Shadowproof. And he also hosts some of their live events. And uh, he hosted a live event for a very heavy agenda a couple of weeks ago. Um, but if you go to shadowproof.com, um, you should be able to find that uh, the recording of that live event uh, that we did together. This podcast was recorded on March 15th. Um, So when we're referring to tomorrow, uh, we're referring to Tuesday, March 15th. Um, So if you're listening to this now, uh, the vote tallies have definitely not finished up yet in most of the states. And uh, our discussion will revolve mostly around what the GOP is going to do about Trump and the neocons freaking out over Trump. And we go into a little bit of history about Clinton trying to hold on um, and take the nomination through a super delegate game in 2008. Now, without further ado, here's Daniel Wright.
1: If Trump wins in Florida and Ohio, it's over. You think? It's, no, I mean, statistically, it's over. They can't. He's, he's basically shut out. Rubio's out, which is the neocon favorite. Kasich has no path whatsoever to the convention, so he can't even be a brokered candidate, most likely. I mean, he's been—you t- know—Kasich's been telling everybody, you know, I'm the guy of, who can win Ohio. He's the governor of Ohio. If, if he loses Ohio, if Trump clears both Florida and Ohio tomorrow, which are unlike these other states, winner take all. So you get 40 percent, like he's been getting elsewhere. You get all the delegates.
0: Okay, so that's what everything. they mean when they say winner take all. So you, yeah. it's good to have you here today because um, I think you understand the technical side of this a lot better than I do. So when you say that he technically cannot, uh, that, one, that it's all over if Trump wins Ohio and Florida, does that mean that the delegate count for any of the other candidates can't possibly reach the minimum requirement? Of like a thousand. Something? I believe
1: that is true. The only person who in, 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 um, can catch him, in theory, is Ted Cruz. Yeah. But if Trump sweeps Florida and Ohio, there's, I mean, remember, he's going to get all the delegates for two huge states. And so Cruz really, plus now what's interesting about the way the primary process is set up, and this has been good for Hillary Clinton too, is it starts outside of Iowa and New Hampshire, it rolls through the South. And that's been great for Hillary because there's lots of black voters in the South, and she does better among African-American voters. But it's been great. But it also means Cruz has lost a bunch of the South, and the only way the math works for him is if he won all the South, because he's going to do terrible in the North, typically, because he's extremely conservative. So Trump took a lot of the South away from Cruz, which was, quote, Cruz's firewall. right? He was, Cruz was expecting to lose the Northern states, but he was expecting he'd have all the South. You know what I'm saying? Yeah before Trump entered the race. <laughs> then Trump entered the race and started taking away key parts of the South for, from Cruz. So, you know, Cruz would have to beat Trump. I'm not even sure after Ohio and Florida, depending on what else Trump wins tomorrow, too. He would have to beat Trump in New York, which is going to be tough. He's going to have to beat Trump in Pennsylvania. He's going to have to beat Trump. Actually, I don't, even then, he can't get to the magic number, which is 1237, which is, once you've got that, there isn't, the convention is a formality. They can't stop Trump at the convention if he's got 1237. So if the, he comes short of 1237, they can try some shenanigans. And what happens next, is <laughs> <to> <laughs> anyone's guess, that could be the end of the Republican Party as we know it, if they deny Trump the nomination, if he ha- even though he has you know, most of the delegates. But if he beats Rubio in Florida, Rubio's out. If he beats Kasich in Ohio, Kasich's out and he'll have such a lead over Cruz that Cruz won't ever be able to get the nomination, he might be able to stop Trump from getting to 1237. But even then, it's, it, you know, they go to the convention, and Trump's got like 1,100, which is a very likely scenario. right? So it's like 137 short. And the Republican Party establishment tries to take all those voters out and put in you know John Kasich or Rubio or somebody else, it, it'll they'll walk out. The Trump voters will walk. And that'll be the end of... <laughs> 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 I mean, nobody really left to vote for the Republican Party. So I would you, be surprised if they Yeah,
0: go ahead. So, so do you think there will still be like a really dramatic situation going down at the actual convention? I guess either scenario, if Trump falls short of the required amount of delegates to secure the nomination, or even if he gets it... Um, right. I mean, either scenario... <clears throat> It sounds like they're going to try to pull something. Um, but do you think if he gets the required amount, um, they'll just have to basically accept it at that point, or do you think they'll still, be, you know, still try to use Ted Cruz to try to? I, I guess I just don't under, I really don't understand what they could do at that point. Um,
1: right. Well, well, here's here's a here's a way to look at it that I think is useful. There's two rebellions going on. There's a rebellion going on in the Democratic Party. That's the Sanders, that's the social Democratic left trying to unseat the establishment candidate, which is Hillary Clinton. That one might not work. She might get enough, and she is already positioning herself to have the count plus superdelegates, which is a controversial issue, to secure it. There's a rebellion in the Republican Party, except in the Republican Party, the rebels might win, in which case Trump, Trump gets to one, two, one, two three, seven, what happens, What will likely happen then is the establishment will walk,
0: <laughs> which will be very you know strange. I mean? Yeah, no, I mean that. Yeah,
1: the establishment will walk because there's really not much under the rules they can do. I mean, they'll try. I'm sure there'll be some shenanigans. There's undeniably shenanigans. I mean, that's what they've already done. You know, Mitt Romney went out and told people to vote <laughs> for Rubio in Florida and vote for Kasich in Ohio, which is to say, give us a broker convention and let me and my Bain Capital friends figure out a way to take this away from trump just give us a broker convention and then we can go to work oh but that's he,
0: what i was gonna interrupt really quickly that i was i was gonna say earlier so that was the original strategy to try to derail trump's campaign and clearly from what you just said that's not gonna work anymore is for each for, for if he sweeps tomorrow it, so if he sweeps tomorrow yeah but it's, it doesn't seem like that strategy really took flight at all to like try to split up his delegates between all these other candidates because they're basically trying to tell people to vote against Trump essentially right I mean isn't that what Rubio right. I mean, was telling people
1: and then Rubio told his supporters in Ohio mm. which is the strangest thing you've ever seen yeah. to vote for Kasich yeah. and what's funny is there's reports of Rubio supporters in Ohio saying no <laughs> I'm going to vote for Marco Rubio, which is, I mean, that's how bizarre this thing has gotten. That's how inside, I mean, the great thing about this election is the the scab has been ripped apart and all the pus is coming out. So all this like inside electoral strategy stuff has now been come out into the open. And all the people who think they're just going to vote for the candidate they want for president in a very kind of simplistic, although, you know, substantive basis is what I'm doing. I'm voting for who I want to be president are looking at all this weird you know, power games and going, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to vote for Maca That's who I support. Why don't I vote for John Kasich? I don't want him to be president.
0: <laughs> it it kind of reminds me of, uh, I, I guess, it seems like it might be useful to go back into the past a little bit to find some parallels that, uh, about, just to what's going on right now, but there were sort of different scenarios that happened before that, Um, What you're describing, where it's more out in the open, they're just almost, you know, they're making all this process overly transparent right now, out of panic almost. But when, I I remember when Hillary and Obama were sort of neck and neck, and it seemed like Obama had pretty much secured the nomination, uh, the amount of delegates that he had, there was a time period, and I cannot remember if this was covered in the news, I'm sure it was, but where Hillary oh, yeah. seemed to hold on very tightly to the hopes that somehow she was still going to get the nomination, even after I believe technically she couldn't get it the right amount of delegates. But, but there was, oh, this, I remember this period very well. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just describe that a little bit for us. Cause I remember it sort of ended with Diane Feinstein ushering them both to a private meeting at her home to sort of work it out and, I just remember, I mean, is, did that actually happen? Was that a dream? It, it seems like... <laughs> it
1: seems was, like for uh, those of us who were working, um, and I was in 2008, working on the Obama campaign and working for the ticket, um, it was the nightmare scenario, which was Hillary had technically not... With, remember, there's two kinds of delegates. There's the delegates you win through the election or caucus, and then there's this group of people called superdelegates,
0: and that's only for the Democrats, right? Right, the
1: Republicans don't have that. Okay. And the Democrats created it to avoid chaos, the <laughs> irony of ironies. Jesus. And so that if it was closed, these people who are not nobody, are elected officials, some of them are lobbyists, some of them are just party hacks, these so the superdelegates are these kind of Washington insiders, to put it bluntly, in some cases elected, in many cases unelected, who are supposed to kind of break a tie, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of, right? They're kind of the swing vote. They're supposed to break a tie, but the truth of the matter is Hillary came in with all the superdelegates this time. And, and previously, and plus, <laughs> here's the thing that adds even more chaos, they can switch their vote whenever they want. <laughs> they, they can pledge themselves. I mean, there's already superdelegates who have switched uh, to um, Sanders from Hillary Clinton. There are superdelegates who's, such as Alan Grayson, a congressman, I believe running for Senate, who he put a Facebook post up and said, vote, and i that's who I'll give my superdelegate vote to. Like, it's a, it is such a nightmare. So what happened was Hillary Clinton thought she could beat, kind of beat the system by really, after the elections had more or less run their course, play a superdelegate game. Because she had, like, this is why she just That's so funny. She was the inevitable candidate. So, all these superdelegates, thinking she was inevitable, got on board. And so, by the, by the time it was over and Barack Obama had one more, he had one more pledged, you know, he had more delegates from the vote in caucuses, primaries and caucuses. She was going to try to steal it, essentially. Not steal it, but she was going to try to, it. well, I think it's kind of this weird space. Under the rules, she can try to push. She's going to try to win it via superdelegate. <laughs> And everybody in the party understood that if that happened, it was over, because it would rip the party to shreds. And so brokers, people who try to create, kind of basically talk Hillary down from doing this kind of, essentially, you know, victory by lawsuit, yeah um, talked her out of it. And I guess I would presume, although there's no independent confirmation, that they got into a room and agreed that uh, she would get a <laughs> Secretary of State spot, as I'm guessing. I don't know. That's unknown. But that was how it was brokered at the end, that there was a sort of please stop, just, just accept that you lost, please. But the reason she could keep going and say, no, 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 I can win through the superdelegate process, and we don't know if these are valid superdelegates or not, it's because of the superdele- existence of superdelegates. In the Republican Party, that does, there are no superdelegates. So you're going to see the numbers, one way, that's why people keep talking about one, two, three, seven, because there's no extra group of people who kind of swoop in and can actually alter the outcome. But, but that can happen in a Democratic Party. And if you see Sanders supporters on social media, they're always yelling at CNN and MSNBC and Fox, maybe, I don't know, um, <laughs> to say that stop putting up Hillary's total numbers that dwarf Sanders, because they're adding in her superdelegate commitments. Just uh-huh. put in the number of delegates she has won through elections. Now she's still ahead, but she's not blowing him out.
0: No, she's blowing yeah. him out
1: when you add in a super delegates. So
0: it looks more it, like it, Ted Cruz and Trump when you look at their actual delegate count yeah. together. No, it's it's interesting that you say that because I I, I mean when you paint it that way, I, I, it makes a little bit more sense now. Um, the psychological effect that that could have to always see that tally. That includes the superdelegate counts on the news because it sort of creates a feedback loop or it just gives people the sense of, oh, well, he doesn't have a chance. It's it, right,
1: that's, and that's the point. It's that's a kind of Hillary a self fulfilling prophecy.
0: Yeah. And when you say that this, this election, the superdelegates were sort of already had a lot of them had already chosen like right out of the gates, is that normal? Like, did that happen in 2008 between Hillary and Obama? Um,
1: well, I think it's important to note that unlike. Sanders, no. I mean, it happened in terms of she got more than, than Obama did coming out of the gate, for sure. Mm-hmm. Because she was the inevitable candidate. She's always the perennial <laughs> inevitable yeah, yeah, yeah. candidate. Um, and this time, because Sanders... Remember, every Hillary Clinton, they've been able to do this. It's really a kind of psych warfare or something on Democrats. They say, we're going to win no matter what. Just get on board the train or get run over. Don't be dumb. And they <laughs> convince all these people to do it. So this time... All these other Democrats who could have run against Hillary, including Vice President Biden, who kind of kept playing a weird game with whether he was going to get in or not, eventually gave in to this sort of power-perceived, as power-achieved, self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy. And so everybody else did, too. So Sanders and, if you can remember this name, Governor Martin O'Malley, who did, by the way, run for president at one time. <laughs> people forget so quick. Um, they didn't have any these these superdelegates, or not many that I can think of, They most all went in for Hillary because that's what they didn't want to be on the other side when this train started coming through. So she was. Plus, you have to remember, in the beginning, Sanders was polling at like thirty percent, not even. He was considered a complete, not just an outsider, but like this guy's a socialist. Americans hate socialists. This is a joke. He's just running because he's you know this is he's just this crank. (laughs) He's not going to win anybody over. So they mostly all went for Hillary already. Like I said, they can change their mind, and that has happened. But they mostly, you know, the party, it is the establishment. It's, it's such a naked display of establishment power. And it's, I don't know if you want to get into the history of this, but, you know, the Democratic Party had its own implosion that the Republicans might have this year when the McGovern campaign uh, took over, right? Lots of people bolted from the party itself, but many of the tr- trade unions, I mean, the AFL-CIO said, he, you know, George McGovern is an apologist for the socialist world, and they and the Teamsters uh, went the other way. They endorsed um, Nixon. Or they or they went, I thought one, I definitely, they definitely endorsed in 72, but that was part of some deal with getting Hoffa part, and I forget what... But they there was this big... So they said, okay, we're going to reform it to make sure we don't have any more chaos. We're going to create this system that allows us to make sure, if there's any question, we'll just settle it before... We'll have a very stable party system. And, of course, what happens is everybody who's anti-establishment gets even more pissed off when they see superdelegates because they think, geez, not only are we not – not only is the establishment – not only is the DNC not being fair, like, for example, the way people feel about the debates were initially set up with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, but now even if we vote for our preferred candidate, (laughs) these other people – who had nothing to do with the election are going to decide the outcome. So I, I, I don't know. It's, the Republicans don't have that though. So even, I mean, I'm sure right now they wish they did. The, the RNC does at least.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, so that's, so that's been going ever since the McGovern campaign. The super I think mean, that's when saying. the
1: reforms were made. Yeah. So used to, I mean, it used to be, you could, here's the thing, I guess we could say in favor of some of the people who say we've made progress it used to actually be even worse than this.
2: <laughs>
0: oh really? It
1: used to be even more back room. So uh, you know, um, particularly with the Democratic Party. But
0: so you're saying, so that get, on a technical level, at least now it's it's known that they have this these superdelegates and they really make the decisions. Not it's not done that secret. they
1: have this amount of influence <laughs> and power. Yeah. Over elections, they're not really party to.
0: Now, just just for the people listening, is there anywhere? you can find a list of every superdelegate and their names and who they are.
1: Yes. It should be... I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, but it should be like...
0: But it's not private information. It's, it's oh, public. Oh,
1: no, no, no. It's a public... Oh, no, This is official party... Uh, this is official an official party designation. Mm-hmm. They're mostly, like I said, elected officials, not all. Um, some of them are just party packs. And, you know, it's important that it's official because in the event of a total disaster, as was happened in 2008 from one perspective, you know, it can get into litigation. So you're, it's an official position. It's mm-hmm. not secret. And that's why people can flip. That's why Alan Grayson, for example, said, you know, I'm a designated superdelegate, a congressman. Um, as such, I have this pledge, and instead of doing it on his own, he has his own, you know, he could do it for whatever reason he wants. Once you get the superdelegate designation... You decide how you want to vote, but he decided to make it open as a Facebook vote
0: <laughs> That's absolutely absurd, but I mean it's I guess I it's,
1: mean this is a system I mean
0: <laughs> I guess it's better than what Howard Dean said on Twitter, which was do you remember what his, what he exactly what he said that he's just it's not based on the votes like he, he said something like um, yeah, I know what super delegates are are for, but um but I don't have to like vote. For the, like based on the will of the people or something? Um, so. um,
1: he's, well, yeah, I mean, superdelegates don't have to. Yeah, pledge delegates, though, oh, well, well, here's the thing, here's what's interesting. and this is something I don't think this is going to happen at the Democratic convention, but a lot of delegates are only bound to vote for the person they're representing. You know, people of Ohio, for example, voted for Let's say Bernie Sanders, or let's say they voted for Hillary Clinton and they have been sent to the convention to vote. They only, they're only bound to do that usually on the first ballot. That's why a brokered convention is total case.
0: The recording cuts out right here for a brief moment, and then we start talking about Trump again. We lost a little bit of information of Daniel going into the, the superdelegate process and how exactly that happens. So sorry about that.
1: And so... He needs to he needs to be offensive, <clears throat> precisely because he needs to come under attack. Because when he comes under attack, his supporters rally. So and and only and more importantly, and I think even I don't know how you could put a monetary figure on this, but he has probably gotten close to a billion dollars of free media. Oh yeah, he is self funding his campaign, and he's not paying that much because the media is his. If he's, he's hijacked the media. He's getting free, or what they call in public relations, earned media, which is advertising you don't pay for. And he's he's done it by this provocation, you know, reaction, reaction to the reaction. And so he's gotten all this free media. He's on everyone's tongue. And not only has he kept the fire going by constantly coming under attack, but he's suffocated the other candidates, no one more so than Jeb Bush, who so he really, in a sort of internet frame, trolled out of this race. He for announced sure. he was running for president the next, the day after Jeb Bush announced. He went after Jeb constantly in the most hilarious race. He found insults that were so well, seemed like nothing at the time, almost like who, low energy, why does that, who cares? <laughs> yeah. But over time, especially over time and over, he was ground Jeb Bush down. And, the, and, and all through this, all the media is talking about is Trump. So I don't think Trump is upset by the GOP establishment attacking him. I think he kind of needs them to attack him because he understands, and as did every campaign, including the Cruz campaign, that this is, the GOP voter base is furious with their life. There could be a lot of different reasons. Part of it could be trading and jobs. Part of it could be demographic anxiety about... Uh, whites becoming a minority, part of it could be just a genuine malaise, fatigue in the Middle East, it could be a bu- bunch of different things. But they're furious, or, more, or talking about the Tea Party, they had the Tea Party revolution, they took over Congress, and they don't feel like they got anything. So he taps into that, and, and that's his validator. That he's being attacked by Mitt Romney, he, couldn't have, he would have paid for that. That's exactly who he wants to attack him. And then he gets to go up there and say, this guy's a loser. And every, and every Republican who looks at the White House and sees that it's still occupied Barack, by Barack Obama goes, yeah, Mitt Romney is a loser. <laughs> and he's not like us. So I think he needs the establishment to attack him. I don't think it's hurting him. I think he's hurt by people thinking about his, what his candidacy is actually about because <clears throat> if you look at it, there's not much there.
0: No, it, there like, isn't.
1: Fox News' takedown said, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse... That's, penny, that's nothing. Like that's not a real budget strategy. You keep talking about how much debt we have. Waste fraud and abuse is, I mean, it's great to talk get rid of waste fraud and abuse. Everyone's for that, but that's going to save you like ten or twenty billion dollars. You're talking about you get like hundreds of billions under control. He just goes waste fraud and abuse. That's what we're doing. The Washington insiders, and everybody goes, <laughs> what? And if he keeps, but he keeps going. But you know, Chris Wallace of Fox News can only ask him the question three times. Show a video, show some graphs. Then he's got to move on. So if Trump just keeps saying the same thing over and over again, he eventually has to kind of throw in the towel and go to the next question. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I, I was, I thought that was interesting to watch that that debate specifically because um, it actually seemed like Fox was doing good journalism uh, in terms of like the the specific things they were trying to pin him down on, um, which is unusual in the sense that. Most of the time, they never ask these politicians very specific questions like that, that sort of point out their hypocrisies. They kind of tried to do it to other candidates to seem fair, like Marco Rubio, but they were definitely honing in on Trump. Um, I, I, I kind of, as like their last, you know, attempt to, to sort of derail him. Um, and I was impressed, right. actually, what, of what kind of questions Chris Wallace and Megyn Kelly were throwing at him. And I was equally impressed by Trump having really no answer at all and still sort of slithering out of the question and not seeming hurt by that afterwards. Right. Um,
1: well, an right, important to note, and I think this is something even Trump's critics would acknowledge, including myself, Fox News, Roger Ailes, Rupert Murdoch have been against Trump from day one. Every Fox debate, they've tried to take him down. Mm-hmm. In fact, they've been so mean to him that he strategically, and I think a brilliant, brilliant move, dropped out of the Iowa debate right before it happened because of uh, public, he blamed the public statement on it, but truth be told, he was tired of getting hit, and he, I imagine he was kind of thinking it's not in his interest to keep doing it. But they have been against him the entire time. So, <laughs> and it's naked now. It's so naked. It's the, I mean, it only seems, like, that debate was so clearly they were out to get him. Mm-hmm. And what he proved was that it doesn't matter that Fox News sometimes acts like a journalistic organization. The audience doesn't care. And Fox has made an entire career or entire, I guess, organizational history, and with much success, relying on people's ignorance. And so they're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of eaten by their own monster that got bit by their own dog and so trump (laughs) knows knows how to play the fox audience better than fox news does and you have all these people up there like megan kelly chris wallace all these kind of phony journalists coming up there and pretending that they're real journalists they're going to say okay fine we're going to really you know chris wallace i'm really going to be channel my dad here in 60 minutes mike wallace and i'm really going to go after him and they finally do it and no one cares
0: no (laughs) No, and, I, and it, I think it had come out right after that debate that um, that Fox News sort of internally, maybe it even came from Roger Ailes himself, uh, announced through their company, I don't know if it was, a. I I, I should pull this article up because it might have been a memo or might have actually been something that somebody said in public, but it would they're basically saying that um, they were deciding to stop giving prominent and favorable coverage to Marco Rubio, uh, which means that the whole time they were giving favorable and prominent coverage to a candidate who hadn't won any uh, state yet. Um, I think he won Minnesota. Is that the only state that he won?
1: Well, he won Minnesota. Now he's won Puerto Rico. Okay. So, Um,
0: so a candidate who was, (laughs) was polling very low, they decided to uh, just give prominent and favorable coverage to. Um, So that's, I mean, that's a hilarious admission in and of itself because, He's clearly the neocon candidate, um, and they propped him up way past his sort of, uh, you know, his uh, the, his freshness period. Um, but
1: right, and he's the dog food problem. You know, in, in advertising and marketing, it's, there's something called the dog food problem, which is it's the best ingredients, it's the best packaging, it's the best quality, it's the best price. The only problem with the dog food is the dog won't eat it. And that's the problem with Marco Rubio. He's the most, you know, he's very disciplined. He's a talented public speaker. His resume is not great, but it's not bad either. The problem is the voters won't vote for him. So they got to dump the product. And that's kind of what I took from the Ailes. We've been trying to sell this dog food, but the dogs won't eat it. Yeah. So we've kind of got to cut our losses here.
0: Exactly. Because to someone like Roger Ailes and Murdoch, it's all about ratings, ultimately, and and viewers. Um, And relevance. Yeah, if you're, if you're exactly. picking
1: the candidate out who can't exactly. get any votes, you're irrelevant, and then not only that, people know you're irrelevant.
0: Mm-hmm. That's,
1: that's what they. That's the real problem.
0: And, and I think that's part of why we saw Fox News embrace some of the Tea Party energy for so long. Like they would have Rand Paul on a lot, and it almost, in a weird way, like seemed to influence a lot of the pundits on Fox News. Like Sean Hannity um, and other some of the other pundits <laughs> for Fox News were kind of you know getting on the same page as as rand paul's anti-interventionist bent um on and off i mean especially libya that that sort yeah. of got absorbed permanently into the republican party where now you even see ted cruz <clears throat> acting like that was a wrong-headed military intervention um but i wanted to i wanted to uh to turn a little bit to the idea of um When the, you know, the GOP, the establishment GOP, of course, is trying to stop Trump. Um, But the first thing I noticed, um, and I don't know if there was anything that came out before this, but uh, that Robert Kagan editorial in the Washington Post uh, describing Trump as the Frankenstein monster that the GOP (laughs) had created and and lost control over, um, seemed to be, uh, it almost seemed to be like a canary in the coal mine... Uh, experiment on his behalf going out before most or pretty much any establishment Republicans or neocons to essentially announce uh, that he's refusing to vote for Trump and then he'll even vote for Hillary Clinton if Trump is the nominee. Um, (laughs) Yeah,
1: twist his arm.
0: Yeah. So was that the first thing that you saw that really signaled this freak out or were there whispers before that they were really going to freak out this much.
1: It was clear that Trump's, there was a, there was articles already about Trump's foreign policy. One was written by a a neocon journalist over at the Bloomberg view, Josh Rogan, who frequently uh, co-writes articles with Eli Lake. Um, And there was other murmurings about Trump's positions. I mean, Trump is just Trump. Trump genuinely threatens them in all sorts of odd ways. Uh, Ron Paul, Rand Paul, for, before he signed that Iran letter for some reason, uh, and got trolled into self-destruction, I would argue, with Rand Paul. Yeah. They were, they're a frontal assault on the neocons. In fact, they usually use the term neocon when they're making their assault. Yep. Trump is someone who is, is even more dangerous because he's not just playing for power against them because he's going to appoint his own people. So, by the way, some of them could be neocons. You never know.
0: John but Bolton is, apparently is already uh, advising him. I don't know if
1: yeah, he... John Bolton, Jeff Sessions is, is advising him on immigration. Jeff Sessions, maybe not a senator. Jeff Sessions is not a, you know, the most neocon, but he's pretty hawkish. Mm-hmm. It, it's Trump is amplifying people in the Republican Party that the neocons hate. Mm. He is bringing to prominence. You could call him isolationists, You could call him really realists on some level. And his candidacy, even if he's going to cut deals after the fact, is an argument they've been trying to win. And so, you know, they're all about symbolism. It's Straussians that they are. And Trump's victory in the Republican Party, particularly after what he said about Iraq and 9-11, that is a symbolic, even you could argue substantial, not just symbolism, Repudiation of the George W. Bush foreign policy from Republicans. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to be contemned by Democrats and the anti-war left, or even moderate Republicans, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like Senator (laughs) Voinovich, even blocked John Bolton's reappointment to UN ambassador. Like you know, it's okay to lose some of these people, but for the heart of the Republican Party, the people that they needed, the people that they made a deal with in the '80s. Remember, the moral majority was the attack arm, of, or not the attack arm, but the the sort of mobilizing force of the neocon intellectual class. In fact, in that film that we've both seen, that we love, Power of Nightmares, um, I forget who said it, but he said it was like when Stalin told, talk to the Pope, he said, you know, how many divisions do you have? And the guy said, well, this is like our divisions now. We have this moral majority. We have these Republican voters who are aligned with our foreign policy views and we are very strong. Trump's ascendancy, based on what he's saying, at least, let alone what he's going to do, that's a separate question, is a public repudiation of neoconservatives. So they really can't stand next to him because he's physically condemning them, and people are saying they like it. <laughs> that's what scares them even more. So I don't think they can really make a deal with Trump. They can blame it on racism and all sorts of stuff, but that's, that's irrelevant to them. So
0: it's, it's, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean... Uh the, the Robert Kagan editorial, I mean, that's my, that was my read of it, too, that, that the, the, he's basically saying that bigotry, Islamophobia, and all these other things that Trump has been courting is sort of the main reasons why he thinks that the Republicans should distance themselves from him. Um, but what you're saying is that, that symbolically Trump represents a repudiation of neoconservative ideology. Um, whereas the the Pauls were more of a frontal assault, directly facing head on neocon ideology, even using the language. Um, but I guess go a little bit more into that. Like what besides what Trump has said about nine eleven and Iraq, which got a lot of air, uh, like play in the media, but really didn't take up very much space in his whole chronology of his campaign so far. Like he hasn't really talked much about Iraq in his you know, rallies and things like that. So I guess go into that a little bit in more detail. Like what, what, what about him?
1: That he's, yeah, it's not that just that he's attacking Iraq. It's the way he's attacking Iraq. So, you know, a lot of people say, for example, Hillary Clinton will say, you know, we, we, we were mistaken on intelligence. Now that is the complete cop out of an ideological point, which is just to say, it wasn't a bad idea. We just did it wrong. Yeah, Trump is attacking the Iraq war in a very insidious way. He is saying, we, we lost all these lives, we destroyed all this country, it's led to the current situation, and, quote, we got nothing. <laughs> Unquote. And if you look at the, the Josh Rogan write-up, you'll see that what Trump says, and it's a key paragraph, I remember I pulled it from one of the things I wrote, is Trump does not believe in spreading democracy. And he doesn't believe in it, not because he's you know, sort of on the left and has an internationalism that might look at it a different way, but because he just doesn't care about spreading democracy. He thinks it's a dumb goal. Now that is a powerful, believe it or not, as simplistic as that is, that is a powerful systemic critique of neoconservatism, which is America should always have this, you know, this, this allows them to make common cause with humanitarian interventionists, liberal internationalism yep is that it should always what trump is doing is he has an isolationism but he's not doing a deal with one of those groups he's he's partnering with the realist school which is the real threat to neoconservatives unless you think the empire is going to come down (laughs) outside of that the only rival school is is the realist school and trump is, is kind of trying to marry isolationism we should be building our own country we got nothing with realism and that's an actual alliance that could rule that's a ruling agenda I don't know if he's going to do that, but he's rhetorically there, and that's what Rogan's kind of, as a neoconservative, war- you know, warning about. He's like, this is a big divergence in the article. This is a big divergence from typical American rhetoric, which is that we care about spreading democracy, we care about human rights. You know, this guy's out here saying, we don't care about any of that, <laughs> which, you know, of course, is true, but <laughs> it's, to start from that perspective really writes the neoconservatives out of the game. With Hillary, they have a chance, because they always know how to reframe their policy objectives as liberal interventionism. They always know how to do that, and they always find these kind of dupes to do it with. So they have a seat at the table with Hillary Clinton. It sounds like even rhetorically, on the basic level, they're not going to be driving a Trump foreign policy. They might not even be in the room, and nothing scares them more than being out of power. So in some I think the Kagan article had nothing to do with Islamophobia. Why do the neocons <laughs> care about Islamophobia? Um, it, it had everything to do with the fact that they saw the writing on the wall that this guy was not one of them. And not only that, but that his... I think it's more important, I guess, the reverse of the repudiation. If he could be defeated, that would mean that neoconservatism was still strong.
0: Yeah. No, I, think, and I think so, yeah. that matters yeah i think I think you're right um and i think if let's say if Ron Paul just happened to win the nomination back in two thousand and eight, if this is a different reality, uh something like that <laughs> could have happened um I think that the neocons would have backed Barack Obama in that election absolutely um it would have been different than what we're seeing now um but and I, and this is I, I guess i makes me go back to sort of the origins of the The um, the old new neocons, not the not the newer, newer generation like Josh Rogan, but sort of the 90s neocons um, like Crystal and Kagan, Um, they they said that they started PNAC as basically a reaction to the rise of isolationist foreign policy in the GOP in, uh, in the GOP in the 90s. So Pat Buchanan back then was sort of their Trump now. Um, they were scared of that influence, um, and you know, and then Ron Paul sort of took that mantle later for them as an avatar of you know the main influence over the GOP of of this anti, uh, you know, uh, overseas, you know, just um, I guess isolationist policy. Um, but it's it's interesting. Um, I guess, and it also brings up a completely unrelated thing too. Is I think that Trump is has been really good at also tapping into um, that energy, uh, that voting base, without directly spelling it out. Um, And that's kind of impressive in and of itself. Like, he isn't making this case for isolationism um, like Rand and Ron Paul in a really coherent way. He's just sort of throwing out, you know, things, uh, statements about the Iraq War.
1: Um, He's beating them at their own game, actually, if you look at it. Now, that's what Trump is actually saying. He's framing it dishonestly like they are. He's saying, I just don't want stupid people. <laughs> that's, like, that's the extent of his, like, well, what about this? What about this? I'm not going to I don't want, we're gonna, what we're going to have is smart people, the best in the world. These are going to be the smart, you know, I'm already changing the subject to how smart the people are instead of answering the question, right? These are the smartest people, tough people. They know what they're doing. We're going to have smart people, not incompetent people, it's gonna, which is the really way, in a blunt visceral way of saying, I believe in smart power. Yeah, It's not that I'm ideological, I just believe in smart power, which he's beating them at their own game. They've had, you know, they've made their bones going out there and bamboozling the working class Republicans into thinking that this, these, in, with these simplistic frames of the world, good and bad, war on terror, evildoers, and Trump's coming in and without any alliance to a greater policy agenda, sort of Straussian text, just saying smart people. <laughs> and he's getting attacked by Republicans. <laughs> That's been their campaign message. They never say, you know, we have a vision for Eurasia. They say we're going to do the smart thing, smart power. It's got to be, you know, we got to be restrained but smart, disciplined, right? Strategic. <laughs> 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 you know, we got we got to do this stuff. So. He's beating them at their own kind of dishonest game. That's, why, that's the real reason I think some people are pissed off at him, but other people are just seeing that this guy is not one of us. So that's an inter- that's his, So he's framing it in ways that aren't, and I agree, in-depth at all, but you don't need to to win. In fact, these people wouldn't have never had a taste of power if they had said what they really wanted to do, <laughs> Right.
0: No, yeah, I mean, and some of them have and and they've been really good at trying to distance themselves from those past statements that they've made and i it brings me to there's some blind spots in Trump's campaign, which I think he has intentionally created um And I'm also impressed that he hasn't been bombarded by questions in the debates about his his sort of repudiation of neoconservative foreign policy. And I'm wondering. Um, and, and, and maybe you can answer this after I'm finished with my little tangent here of if that is because the Republican establishment is afraid to even bring that in play because they don't want to like they don't even want to go there necessarily because if they do, they're worried that that momentum that Trump is tapping into will get even stronger by bringing that into the debate. Like if if Trump is an isolationist. Because that's the approach they took with Rand Rand and Ron Paul really early on. I mean, they they were hammering Rand Paul, I I can remember back to these first round of uh, GOP debates, about being an isolationist. Um, And I I can't recall even one time where Trump has been faced with a question like that. Um, But there's the blind spot I was mentioning is he is tapping into sort of a libertarian energy um, without being clear on specific things like, for example, medical marijuana. Um, Chris Christie as actually one of the only Republican candidates to come out strongly against medical marijuana or legalization of marijuana. So it's, it's interesting to me that he would, that Chris Christie would endorse him. And I still really haven't even heard Trump's position on that. And for a lot of libertarians, that's kind of like an important, in, in a way symbolic, but also like it's an important, you know, specific issue. It says a lot about, you know, other things that the candidate might believe. And then gay marriage. Um, I can't even think, I can't even remember if I heard anything Trump said about gay marriage. Do you think he's intentionally sort of not bringing those into play because he knows that he needs to bridge together sort of these libertarian, more paleo-conservative people with like the socially conservative people?
1: Well, I think there's also some basic rules of politics that Trump understands. And he certainly understands them from a marketing perspective, which is very much like an electoral perspective, which is the more you say, the more you divide, you know, right, divide people, because you, you prevent them from doing what he wants them to do, which is to project onto him their own views. So you know, not being specific, it's a great campaign tactic. Because all those libertarians out there might think he is for medical marijuana. And all the people that oppose medical marijuana might think he's with them. Exactly. They don't know until he actually takes a stand on it. So it's, it's kind of constructive ambiguity. It's, I don't really want to put my foot down on any specific policies. All I'll say is I believe in smart people and win, win, win. And I love the country. And the people that love me love the country. You know, that's what he wants to talk about because that allows these people who are upset. He he gets the anger that the GOP has, and really the country has. And he's tapping into that. And anger is, you know, it's not, it can be blind. And, you know, if he just taps into it a little bit, the more specific he gets, the more people aren't angry anymore. They're thinking about their particular policy positions. That's not good for him. So I think he's going to continue to avoid as much as possible being firm on any of those wedge issues. And when he gets asked about his plans, he's going to just keep saying, I want to make America great again. And, you know, what does a, a great America look like? Well, that's really an individual thing, isn't it? I think a, a great America looks one way in my mind. You may think it's another way. The libertarians may think it's this way. A social conservative may think it that way. But we're not talking about the specifics. We're talking about greatness. Yeah. The ultimate Rorschach, te- you know, what do you see? So... That's his strategy, and that's really basic politics. If you can get away with it, the issue usually is. This is why this cycle is so much fun. Most politicians can't get away with that. They give, they give these vague answers, and then journalists come at them and just keep firing. And Trump can not only withstand the bullets, he, is, he will just keep changing the conversation. He'll say really outrageous things that will outrage everybody else but Republican primary voters. I want to build a wall. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, the Mexican government says they won't pay for it. You know what? It just got 10 feet higher. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. this is a, What do you even say to that? Because you know, no other politician can get away with it, but he's his own, he's playing the media. He's, he's playing the media just as much as the voters. And I think the media is so cynical they're willing to go along with it. Or, or, or they can't resist it. You know, they let him call in. <laughs> yeah, that was That's a big... I see media matters. We took issue with that today, finally, that, you know, you usually have to show up to do an interview on camera. He'll just call in. So They'll do, like, 20 different shows. That's, that's, they're breaking all their own... Well, it's not necessarily a rule, but really just to let people call in. <laughs> like call in the, <laughs> call into the show. So he, he knows how to play the media, I think, better than any other candidate because of his reality TV background and growing up in New York, tabloid media. And so he's just going to keep letting people project onto him, particularly Republican voters, primary voters. And I don't think he'll take a position on any of those issues unless he absolutely has to. And that's one of the reasons why he's doing so well, because there's a lot of people who probably have completely opposite views, but both think Trump's on their side.
0: No, I, I definitely think uh, that's happening. And I've, it's interesting that a lot of, the, a lot of his supporters who are, tend to be more conservative and on, on who maybe even were Bush supporters, um, I didn't see any of them really commenting on on his statements about 9-11 or Iraq. Um, I, I feel like for them, it was maybe just convenient to ignore it completely. Um, and I just thought that was interesting because, uh, you know, you would think that that might have turned off a lot of those people to, to him, um, but it's that sort of vague... Uh, political uh dance he's doing where um you know he wasn't even really concrete on that even though it was a strong statement um it seemed more directed at like an, it almost seemed like more of his like a personal insult at Jeb Bush and it, it was it, and correct. it really sh- had a really strong effect on 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 Jeb and and the perception of Jeb but yeah nobody really nobody really broke that down um you know people like how do you square that with the idea that he wants to you know uh ban all muslims from immigrating into the country it's like it's he's 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 planting both feet you know in totally different sides of the political spectrum sometimes and uh what was i going to say about oh the 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 whole the whole uh racism white supremacy angle i feel like um a part of me does think he is courting people like that. But then you really have to r- realize that the Republican Party <laughs> as a whole has been courting people like that for a long time. It's not unique to Trump. Um they've figured out you know um sort of messaging or 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 sort of hints to throw out Dog there. Whistled. Exactly. Yeah. It's a better better word. Um and I feel like the only thing Trump is doing differently is he's getting a lot of momentum more than maybe some of these previous candidates, but he's maybe a little more extreme and brash in his rhetoric. But is it really that different in terms of courting white supremacists and racists and anti-immigrant people in this country than previous GOP candidates?
1: No, and there's actually, it's, it's really interesting is that, um, it, I kind of want to, like, two, two things you said that I think are interesting and worth commenting on so one is people don't bring up iraq because they're afraid they're afraid because if they bring up iraq to try to defend it they're afraid that trump attacking it will hurt their own credibility they don't want to put u.s you know republican neoconservative foreign policy on trial Mm -hmm. they don't want to put it on trial because if it goes on trial and it loses they're screwed <laughs> it's very clear that they don't want a clear repudiation. They want to fudge it because then they can still say, "Well, you don't know." People, American people, believe in freedom, so you know we, we can we can do this next uh, foreign policy adventure. If they put it on trial and it loses, you know that's a little sketchy. So they're probably a little afraid to do that. But what's important is, you know, Pat Buchanan. It's so interesting that this this <laughs> this memo came out, and it it was was from a. a advisor to Pat Buchanan called Samuel Francis and what he was telling Buchanan when he was going up against the Republican establishment which included neocons by that time was look why don't you just drop this conservative crap nobody believes this none of these white working class voters that are voting Republican are voting for the Republican Party because they really agree with William F. Buckley they're voting for the Republican Party because they think it's going to protect white privilege they think it's going to protect the national identity think it's going to protect them. That's why they're voting Republicans. They're voting because they don't like these other people. Right? These are so-called Reagan Democrats, partly. That Bill Clinton courted in some really nasty ways. That are coming back to haunt Hillary, of all people. So, just drop it. Why don't you just say, you're for Social Security, you're for Medicare, why do you care? But you're also for a national identity. And Buchanan didn't do it. Right? So, Trump is, on the one hand, I think, pl- dropping a lot of the conservatism, orthodoxy that only like 100 people believe in. They all happen to write for the you know, <laughs> New York Times, and National Review, but there's not that many of them. The, the average Republican voter does not give a flying crap about you know, limited government. They don't even care.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's not, it doesn't move them at all. But what used to happen, and this is, there's actually this audio of this from Lee Atwater, who was the political mastermind who kind of created the modern GOP, uh, chief mentor to Karl Rove, all the rest of it. And he said, you know, we used to just say... Racial slurs, I'm not gonna use it here, but the N word, N word, N word. We couldn't do that anymore after civil rights. So we started talking about welfare and tax cuts. And we got increasingly abstract. So by the time people are talking about cutting the budget, it's a racial overture that has no racial language. Yeah. This is what Lee Atwater said. So Trump is kind of reversing the process. <laughs> Instead of talking about personal responsibility Wink, wink.
2: <laughs>
1: he's talking about, hey, we don't want these, <laughs> we don't want these Mexican rapists up in our country. We don't want these <laughs> lazy people. You know, we don't want. We want to build a wall. We want. We need to have a country again. We need to. You know, he's dropping a lot of the pretense. Yep. The entire intellectual architecture, superstructure, really, sit on top of racial appeals to white working class voters. He's gotten rid of all of it and going right to the root. And it's very moving for the people who always wanted that anyway. They never cared about limited government. They never cared about Edmund Burke or William L. Bunkley or conservative intellectuals. Or, they don't care. So he's reaching them directly. And that's also what's pissing off conservatives because what they're learning, particularly the D.C. conservative set, is that nobody really agrees with them in the Republican Party. Yeah. The Republican Party does not have this orthodox view, which, by the way, is wrong anyway, just as a side note. <laughs> they do not have this sort of religion of conservatism. They don't have it. They never had it. And that's what his advisor tried to tell Pat Buchanan, but Pat Buchanan wouldn't go along with it, maybe because he was a real conservative, I don't know. But Trump is dropping all pretense. I'm making an ethno-nationalistic argument and almost extremely clear, like, you know, just a little bit of fudge on it, but almost explicitly. Whereas the Republican Party has developed an entire message machine of abstracting that and making it very unclear what exactly they're saying when they're saying things. So I think Trump is kind of <laughs> he's kind of just exposing that, and that's also <laughs> infuriating people. And we put up this whole, you know, it took 20 years to develop this sort of Orwellian language around race and money, <laughs> you know,
2: <laughs> and he just building a lot of Reagan...
1: Yeah, well, and he's burning the whole thing down. <laughs> and it's, um, what it's also revealed is that this has been the core of the Republican Party since the civil rights movement. The core of the Republican Party is a demographic, a white demographic, that is antagonistic towards social programs, not because they oppose government spending, but because they oppose government spending for certain people. Yep, They don't oppose it for themselves. And that's what Trump's exposing, and that's not what, you know, the conservative establishment or conservative intellectuals want people to believe. They want people to believe these people actually believe in a sort of, you know, contract for America, and it's not true. It was never true. And so it's kind of an existential crisis for them, and it's fun to watch them write about it because <laughs> they're so <laughs> losing their minds.
0: Well, it's, it's, so, it's so interesting the way it's all unfolding because Robert Kagan is obviously a very smart intellectual and the fact that he wouldn't say anything in that editorial the way that you've just broken it down i think is, is is shows that he he knows that what you just said is true i mean he's not an idiot um you would have to be in total denial if you don't agree that the core of the gop has been that and then has just been um sort of you know uh like all this orwellian language has been piled on top of it um, to make it less racist seeming uh, and I don't believe for a second that he um that he thinks that trump is some uh, you know uh, big arboration from that aspect of the GOP. so what I'm wondering is why aren't even more Democrats talking about i feel like democrats are missing an opportunity right now to really break down sort of this history of the gop and what trump really is and instead i see a lot of people from the left almost in a weird way falling for the anti-trump republican messaging where a lot of them are pointing at trump in the same like they're alarmed by trump like compared to cruz and rubio in a way that doesn't really make sense, um, to me at least. Uh, And I'm just wondering, like, how do you feel about that? Do you think that a lot of Democrats and liberals are seeing the same things that you just described? Or are they falling into this idea that um, Trump is so much scarier than Rubio and Cruz and he is this blatant white supremacist, whereas, you know, the rest of the Republican Party might have, you know, they might be bad, but they're not this bad. You know, they're not this crazy and scary. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's, it's an interesting combination of things. One, you have to remember the average liberal, the average Democrat is, is of the same, you know, not stupidity, but ignorance of the political, of what's the game that's being played here. There's so many games being played, and these people are, you know, living their lives. They're taking their kids to soccer practice. They're looking at their, I mean, they don't have time to figure out all the little <laughs> three-dimensional chess that's going on. So I think there's some people who are just generally looking at an image and having a response. And the true Pavlovians that they're seeing rallies where people are raising their hand in a vaguely fascistic way, or maybe not so vaguely, and they're responding by having that response. There's another group of people who think this is going to destroy the GOP and are playing along. They're, they're happy. They think the Republican establishment is, is they see, I think correctly, desperation. Yeah. And they're happy to make Trump the symbol I mean, let's be clear. They want to run against Trump. The Democratic Party wants to run against Trump. I think that's actually a little misguided, but that's their calculation. That's the reality as they see it, that this is a guy they can crush. They're scared of Marco Rubio. I think they should not be scared of Marco Rubio. They should be much more scared of what Trump will unleash, but that's their calculation, that Trump is the one they want, that they'll win everything. They have this coalition that won in 08 and 12, and that coalition will absolutely respond negatively to Trump, and that's great. So there's people who are genuinely just upset by this. There's people who are playing a game. And I think there's also some people who understand there's a gamesmanship, but they're kind of... They're responding to Trump that way because they think, okay, it's a game, okay, it's not real, but you know what? Maybe we should just go back to this. Maybe it's good for America itself to rally around. Maybe this is an opportunity, a teaching moment where we can actually use what is essentially the sort of politic by the RNC to demonize somebody or the Republican establishment as an opening to a broader conversation about race and our own agenda. So there's a lot of opportunism and there's some sincerity in response to Trump on the left. I think it's a mixture of those two things as always.
0: Yeah, I, d- I definitely would agree with that. Um, there, I mean, and it's undeniable. I mean, I, I, you know, I thought maybe at first this, the media going after Trump for this white supremacy thing was purely a manufactured sort of like, you know, last ditch effort to destroy him. But I do think, I mean, it, I can't deny the fact that um, his repudiation of David Duke was not, was, was, hardly strong at all i mean it was strangely not that much of a repudiation and i and you know that whole earpiece controversy or whatever um i I mean i i i really do think that he um he at a certain point he was making a calculation uh that uh why repudiate all this huge voting base um you know maybe a typical gop candidate would have because that's what they're advisors would have told him to do but Trump is not doesn't play the game quite the same way and you know arguably that was even a smart calculation if he really was trying to hold on to a voting block of literal white supremacists maybe even some of them neo nazis um i mean I, I i can't say that's a a dumb political calculation on his part cuz even that...
1: Especially when he's got southern primaries coming exactly. up and then, yeah important what to note here is What's interesting, and something of all people Rush Limbaugh pointed out, which I thought was very interesting, because he's not someone I usually go to for analysis. (laughs) And he said, you know, Trump has denounced David Duke publicly all throughout the week, every day on Saturday, except on Sunday, when most people watch political news, Mm. particularly people who are going to vote on Tuesday. Mm. And he waited, he denounced him all day, (laughs) condemned him, and when he got on the Sunday show, he, he, he kind of wavered or made it like, I'm not so sure. <laughs> and, that's a, and that looks, at least to Rush Limbaugh's view, strategic. That it's one thing to condemn people Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, and it's a completely different thing to outright condemn them on Sunday. Yeah. And you know what? Trump did very well in the Southern primaries after that quote-unquote scandal. Yes, he did. So I'm not sure. Maybe it was an earpiece or maybe it was I uh, uh, I don't see what I gain from going out here and, and telling these people. to. I mean, who, who am I going to gain votes from? The idea that there's this great hatred for the Klan within the Republican Party, let alone the Southern Republican Party, that's just not a correct reading of history. So <laughs> I don't know. He did win those primar- many of those primaries afterwards. And even Ted Cruz and these other guys didn't like run out. You know, Marco Rubio did, but a lot of these other conservatives kind of say, well, he should have been clearer. You know, they didn't, yeah, they, yeah, they didn't yeah. volunteer themselves to go out there and be the people who really stuck it to uh you know <laughs> white supremacists. They kind of, you know, well I support, you know, everybody has the right, you know. So I think he's uh, I would I'm a little torn on that one, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was strategic.
0: Yeah. I and I, I think there, there's a split for sure happening. Like there are definitely people in the mainstream GOP who have finger wagged Trump quite strongly, and have oh, well, not just finger wagged, but have outright told people not to vote for him that it would be a disaster. Like people like Peter King and and other sort of like establishment GOP f- fixtures. But I don't r- remember them. Um, I guess outright calling him racist or or that he is courting white supremacy in a direct way maybe they maybe they have but it seems like um there is a specific group of neoconservatives actually though at least online who are very vocally constantly calling out trump on being racist bigoted
1: we establish ourselves somewhere well there's only two parties and how do we establish ourselves within the Democratic Party? Well, there's no room for us on the real left because they're all anti-war. In fact, they're even anti-realists. I mean, they hate. You know, nothing pissed off the anti or the left, uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party more than when he- Hillary Clinton kept talking about how great she- friends she was with Henry Kissinger. Like that was, you know, <laughs> Bernie Sanders was articulating a lot of people's views when he said, "I don't want to say I'm friends with Henry Kissinger." So even so, he's, and Kissinger's more of the realist than the neocon school. So they're, the, the anti-war left is, is antithetical to what the neocons want. But may there be a home for them in this sort of um, neoliberal section of the party, the corporate Democrats, the, the, you know, the liberal interventionists, humanitarian interventionists. And that's why they, it sort of seems like they have had a almost linguistic shift into talking about intersectionalism and all these different sort of campus left. This is the craziest part about this, if you know the history of neocons, is they arose to a large degree in response to the campus left.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And the idea that the younger faction, at least, is openly embracing Very campus-left language, intersectionalism, that is not popular at all with the majority of people in the Democratic Party, but it is popular with a certain segment that has disproportional influence. So they're trying to sort of ingratiate themselves to the the hawkish side of the Democratic Party, the neoliberal side, the identity politics, um, part of the identity politics faction. And it's very interesting to watch because it's such a contortion, that's a good word to use, from where they've been historically, which is to say they wanted to fight for classical education. They wanted to stand against, you know, one of the great neocon intellectuals, or at least cultural fellow travelers, was Alan Bloom. Traveled in the same circles with all these, you know, Harvey Mansfield and, and Bill Kristol and all the rest of these guys. You know, University of Chicago folks. And that's their whole, like, so you're, you're standing against our vision of the world the campus left. Now they're adopting the campus left language. How that, I, think that's, I actually think that might have been a bridge too far. We'll see how that plays out. But it is very interesting if you know the history of the neoconservatives to see them using campus left terms. And I also am not so sure it'll work. Because I think the Sanders faction, which is definitely taking over the Democratic Party slowly, is nothing, has nothing to do with these people. So no, I'm not sure they'll find a home there either, but they're definitely not, they're definitely being driven out of the Republican Party. So, their they're only, their only chance at a first seat at the table in 2017 is Hillary Clinton, and they know it.
0: Well, that brings up a few interesting thoughts for me. I mean, just like that that they were they were completely the antithesis to this sort of campus left mindset. And uh, um, John. Uh, God, what's his name? The guy who runs a t- tiny revolution blog. Um, he, Schwartz? He, yeah, John Swartz. He, he had an interesting post up in uh, 2007 that I found while doing research for a very heavy agenda. Um, he found a quote from Don Kagan where, um, where in 1969, um, when black student activists took over, um, uh, let's see. Ch- ch- yeah
1: yeah yeah that was happening during their time when they were offended
0: yeah so so, the neocons
1: had been established yeah
0: yeah he 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 recalls um a black uh activist group taking over um uh, campus buildings and sort of uh like staging um you know sit-ins there uh he recalls it as a disillusioning experience he said watching administrators demonstrate all the courage of Neville Chamberlain had a great impact on me and I became much more conservative. So that was his sort of Irving Crystal mugged by a reality moment where he's describing, right. where he's almost comparing the black, you know, activist movements almost like in the same way, like uh, the Nazis <laughs> were, but, uh, but it's, it's interesting when you say that they, so they, they're looking for a home on the left. Um, now, especially with this jump away from the GOP and all this finger uh, wagging about how the GOP has been courting Islamophobia, which is, it's fascinating to see Robert Kagan actually write about Islamophobia, because even people, you know, who are these hailed heroes on sort of the left, like, like Sam Harris, um, they completely reject the premise of Islamophobia. So it's, it's truly fascinating to see someone like Robert Kagan embracing that term. And I would argue, even back in 2012, 2013, um, there was an attempt by certain wings of of the neoconservative ideology in this country to um, capture parts of the left, um, mainly with with Russia. The response to Russia using uh, uh, the gay law, for example, which is an issue that you know would be would resonate mostly with liberals in the United States. And it was neocons who sort of spearheaded, um, that, that, um, I guess the attention to that law here. Um, you know, we saw people like Rosie gray and Miriam elder and Buzzfeed and sort of with Jamie Kirchick and this sort of triangular effort to really, uh, like push this out into the ether. Like it was this, the biggest issue of our time. Um, And that was sort of my entry point into this where I was like, why are, you know, who are all these people, um, you know, trying to make uh, such a big deal about Russia's gay propaganda law, Um, you know, and then it turned out like that Jamie Kerchick was um, a prominent gay neoconservative who had sort of embedded himself into certain quarters of the left. I mean, there was actually a period of time I'd say a two or three year period where I would see Jamie Kirchick's name pop up in sort of like liberal discussions. Um, And it would never, and it would never be like, Oh yeah. And by the way, this guy is a fellow of project for the new American century 2.0. You know, no one would ever mention that because he was, he didn't want people to know that. Um, And I, I go back to his, um, You know, the writings he used to do about Chelsea Manning, it was interesting because I feel like that was an early iteration of what's happening now, what the neocons are trying to do now with trying to almost join forces more with the sort of social justice lawyer side of the liberal wing. But back then, Jamie Kirchick was writing articles in Out Magazine and other actual gay publications, essentially telling people, Chelsea Manning? No, that's not a gay hero. Like, that's a traitor you know, like I'm gay and I'm telling all of you that you need to like look at this person as a traitor. Um, And, but that's, but what we're seeing now is even more of a shift to like a chameleon, like shift to actually represent themselves as the left. I mean, I would argue that Robert Kagan's editorial um, is the most extreme version of that that I have ever seen. Um, And I'm just wondering what other like developments we're going to see like that i i I, and i always you know i mean maybe it's perhaps because of my obsession with the kagan family but it always (laughs) seems like robert kagan is willing to uh break new ground in these areas before a lot of other people are um and i'm just wondering if you've seen any other evolutions in that direction since that editorial um you know, like well, an, it's, it's, interesting,
1: it's interesting to track it because, yeah, and I, it, you know, it, it, that was true for a lot of these folks at one time, but they've been sufficiently, I think, discredited within enough circles within the left, uh, which did not happen organically, but did happen, that a lot of them are not taken seriously or they're understood to be who they are. But um, there, there was an identity politics, it was kind of a weaponizing identity politics, internationally. But what they didn't count on was that, how disruptive that would be. So for example, and plus how inconsistent it is. So these people endlessly attack the libertarians, right? Endlessly. But the libertarians are the last group that's a threat to them when it comes to gay rights or a lot of these identity politics issues. They don't care. I mean, they probably personally may hold bigoted views, obviously in some cases, but like it's not a threat to them. They're not trying to pass laws. So it's kind of schizophrenic to be both attacking that, you know, and and when you see um, Kirchick's a good example, one of the things that pissed off a lot of gay activists was he started fudging on whether or not um, some of these laws, so for example, he supported, it looked like, to some people at least, I'm getting a lot of this secondhand, but that he was okay with people who in some case, uh, wedding cakes, gay wedding cakes, right, they want that the, or give wedding cakes at a gay wedding. And he was kind of okay with that being, you know, he wasn't. Well, he's not really willing to go all the way with gay rights.
2: Yeah. Which
1: was the sort of, and that, because, and why? Maybe, I don't know why, his personal reasoning, but you could look at it strategically and say, well, that would alienate a ton of conservatives mm-hmm. who believe in this religious liberty thing. And so it's kind of a weird, I, I think they keep trying to move the line, but the problem is there's some, you, you lose something for, by being so opportunistic by being so inconsistent. And also to the point, the identity politics people, I mean, that's a very facile argument, and it works for a moment or two, but they're just not a stable political force. And they are, so, you know, social justice warriors, even in and of themselves, which I guess is supposed to, by the way, usually means the campus left, um, they don't really have a long-term effect. They kind of, they're kind of an outrage machine. They bubble up and get very upset about a particular issue, and they kind of go away for a bit before they get upset about something else. And so I guess you can kind of ride that wave if you're opportunistic enough, but it doesn't do a lot of lasting, it doesn't have a lasting impact because people who are actually have core principles typically move, move the boat and the, you know I mean, lo- over, they have a longer influence. So I don't think it really works. I mean, they're desperate. They've got to go somewhere, and apparently the right no longer wants them, but trying to use this social justice language, like for Bradley Manning, that went nowhere. That went nowhere. I mean, there wasn't... Not in part because there wasn't a lot of... I, I don't think Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning, was ever going to be a heroic figure anyway for mm-hmm. a lot of people in this country. I don't think they, they're you know, attempt at kind of ideological damage control meant anything. And then when Edward Snowden came along, they lost. Yeah. Because too many, right. I think they lost the narrative. So I think it was really, they had an easy win with Manning because a lot of people didn't find uh, her to be a sympathetic character Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And then they saw Snowden. they thought he was a very sympathetic character and they lost. So it's, I just think it's... I, I don't think... I think their influence might be uh, overestimated when you look at what they can actually do. Mm-hmm. And I think you do ultimately, in the long term, lose something by being so chameleon, as you put it. So I think they're... It's, it's, it's sort of these weak attacks that don't have much staying of power. They can bruise people up a little bit, but, like, the gay, you know, the gay rights community knows exactly what's going on when a, when a character like Kirchick comes in, or at least they do now. Yeah. You know, a lot of people... So... They're, they understand what's going on. So I think they can be, with journalism, with exposés like your films, they can be kind of, you can kind of inoculate people to them. Mm-hmm. But they have to know, because if they don't know, they'll take them at, right, because a lot of people assume good faith. Yep. And they think when a guy's coming in and saying, oh my God, you know, gay rights are so important to me. <laughs> they go, oh, gay, you know, they don't know. Once they know, I think it's, the toxin doesn't really have much of an effect. But they have to know first. But So that's what's happened with a lot of those weird appeals in the gay rights community. If you talk to those people, they'll tell you they don't really listen to these guys anymore. And a lot of that's happening with uh, Islamophobia. Like, no one will have... no one. It's, it actually, they didn't even get their foot in the door. No one buys these people talking about Islamophobia now who are suddenly concerned with Islamophobia. You know what I mean? Like, the, the, the Kagans or anybody else, that there's no... <laughs> There's no sympathetic audience who would even buy that line at this point. They've, 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 they went all in on the war on terror, and I think it's hard to claw it back. So some people I think have just given up, but they're going to make an attempt, but I don't think they have uh, – I don't see anyone – I'd be very concerned if, it was, if there was a reception to it, but I just see them say these things and try to frame it this way, and it all falls pretty flat. And plus there's people there who know who they are now, who are right there to counter them each time.
0: Yeah. That's
1: yeah. important.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely saw a lot of other people following in, in Kagan's footsteps with some of the other things he said in the editorial, but I do think when he was characterizing the GOP as Islamophobic, it was, the, it was probably a bridge too far for most of them to, to go there with him. Um, but I, it's still interesting in the sense that what, I mean, I can't, Imagine that he really thinks that um, so I mean I can only see it as his attempt to try to influence other people to start using similar language and it does seem like a strange uh, risky move to try to push out that talking point into you know other people who might have bre- been breaking ranks with the the Republican orthodoxy um,
1: it looks like a party line shift
0: yeah it looks, okay, yeah
1: it looks like a party line shift but I'm not sure it's it's so thought out. I think it's also worth remembering, because, and then Kagan is sort of an example of someone whose team's pretty disciplined, that they're really in panic mode. They're really very nervous about Trump. Mm-hmm. And they might have just said you know, it's either, it's, it's either this or we go home.
0: <laughs> like a Hail Mary, just yeah, throw like anything at the wall, see what sticks.
1: Yeah, let's see. You know, people are really upset about this Islamophobia stuff. <laughs> I mean, okay, <laughs> it's like the dog food example again. But it's like, well, maybe if we put a little, you know, sugar in it, all right, try it. Maybe the dog will eat it this time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's it is it is strange. Um, and I, I mean, it, it's it's also weird too how Donald Trump seemed seems to have been campaigning even before he announced this time around in 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 the form of campaigning to get Obama's uh, birth certificate released and <laughs> and is it true that he that his attention to it actually was got, what got the white house to respond and release it because i'm I correct
1: that. in fact in fact it's that's correct in fact they released it the day of the White House correspondence Dinner when they knew Donald Trump would be an attendant. Wow! And then they proceeded to mock him, Obama included. Mocked him. <laughs> he was in the audience. Obama mocked wow. him straight up. So
0: <laughs> this just giving him more power. It's like it's almost like they could they <laughs> like they should, bad move on their part. But
1: uh, well, not bo- bad move on the Democrats' part.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wanted him to
1: be a face of the Republican Party.
0: <laughs> no, that's that's true. But I mean if he does get the nomination, um I, I think you're right though that it would I I mean, I don't know about all the polling. I've seen a lot of polling to suggest otherwise, but I, I, I think Trump would be stronger on a debate stage with the Democrat, either if it's Hillary or Sanders, um, you know, compared to any other Republican who's running right now. Uh maybe they thought it was a good strategy and that he would and he would just you know, um kind of go out in a suicidal blaze of glory or something. But, uh, I don't know. I, I, I honestly think that he could win if he gets to the general election and that's, you know, I mean, it's, it's scary for certain reasons, but it's also, it's kind of like, well, what would his presidency actually be like, you know? Um, (laughs) right. And, and because he's done such a good job of being so vague, it is a complete unknown, uh, And I don't know. I mean, I could almost see him not going all the way. Like I could, I still have this sense that he might actually be like, you know what? Um, This isn't for me. And just dropping out of the race. Maybe that sounds strange, but I mean, he is, he he does have a successful, you know, business and stuff. And he, and and to be in politics and to actually be the president is a huge inconvenience. (laughs) I mean, like for for living the lifestyle that he used to live. So, I guess I'm, su- I would be surprised if he was really that committed to being the president of the United States. Um, but you know,
1: that's an interesting point. I've, I've, I've thought that about that too. Like, does he really want this or is he just doing this? I mean, either way he's won. he's, yeah, he's yeah, built, yeah. you know, he's built himself up. He's made himself even more famous, which for him is a big metric of success. He's, there's no, you know, if he stops, being the presidential candidate or loses, he's still Donald Trump. Yeah. Which is all he's ever wanted to be. So <laughs> for him it's a win win. For other people who are getting crushed in this thing it's it's a it's, you know, career ending. And that's and in fact if he wins the nomination and let alone wins the presidency, it's gonna be really fun to watch these people who have now denounced him come crawling back and try to Well, I didn't really mean that. <laughs> I didn't really mean Islamophobic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Which, which brings me to the, the thought of who has... So we already know John Bolton is, is advising him. Do we know who is advising Hillary Clinton on foreign policy?
1: Well, I thought Kagan was advising her. Uh, he was one of her advisors.
0: Well, I mean, I would assume that he, he would be, but I haven't, seen, I haven't seen a breakdown of who her for, foreign policy team was, and I'm just wondering if... <laughs> well, she hasn't even I think released not that. going
1: to see a detailed one because the one person she was willing to acknowledge, thinking I guess it was innocuous because she's so much in the DC bubble, was Henry Kissinger. They asked. I mean, that's where that came from. It was a question about who do you look to for foreign policy. Oh but wow,
0: it, that was when she when she volunteered his name. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Holy he didn't come. Shit. That's she
1: brought him up. What? Yeah. Wow. This is, dur- this is live during a debate, and they said, "Well, who?" Who do you, who's your mentor? She says, "Well, he's a mentor." of mine. when I think what? of mentor, she's thinking that's a real bipartisan centrist. Everybody loves Henry <laughs> scenario. Oh my God! And what she found out in real time from Senator Bernie Sanders is Sanders and his supporters, and probably a majority of the Democratic Party, hate Henry Kissinger, or at least hate what he, you know, his involvement in the Vietnam War, the bombing in Cambodia, these, Bernie Sanders has brought up these coups, you know, in Chile. I mean, Bert, you know, Henry Kissinger is not a beloved figure in the Democratic Party. So, people are kind of wondering why she decided to bring him up when, they, when she was asked well, who he who looked to in foreign policy. But I imagine she was trying to say, you know, I imagine in her mind he was, she was thinking of the Nobel Peace Prize winning, you know, statesman that the, you know, D.C. and New York media love, not this guy who was part of the Vietnam War and <laughs> illegal bombings and, you know, associated with Watergate, even though he survived it. So, you know, I think she was just out of touch, but that was who she announced. That, that was her... <laughs> I mean, I don't know who told her to say that, but that was who she gave as her mentor and someone she was kept in contact with and was always thinking about. She particularly noted his involvement in China. That's what she, That was her you know, he's really taught me a lot about China. And if you know anything about his business dealings in China, I'm not even sure I would have brought that up. So it was, that's her, that's who she, that was her, that was supposed to be her non-controversial figure. So who knows who else it
0: is? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to have to do some digging to find out, to find out if there's been any public disclosures of, of who's actually advising her. Because Marco Rubio, uh, Uh, released a list and it's basically the same i mean a lot of the same people who signed that anti-trump letter um which we didn't even really talk about Uh, i don't know if we need to go into that too much but basically um a bunch of people from the project for the new american century uh, wrote a letter um begging uh people not to support trump um and I think it could be accurately described as like it's in it's basically a new PNAC letter. It's in the style of all their previous letters, even in the same style as some of the other foreign policy initiative letters. And there's names on, on Marco Rubio's national security dream team, like Elliot Abrams, um, Paula Dobriansky, Eric Edelman, uh, one of the co-founders of the foreign policy initiative. Um, let's see. Uh, Dan Senor, uh, another, uh, person uh, who helped found the foreign policy initiative um and dov zockheim uh, another signatory to pnac letters and even someone who helped write uh, rebuilding america's defenses so it seems like you know obviously most of the neocons are gravitating towards marco rubio's campaign but when that campaign inevitably ends which it will very soon um where are all these people going to go um we already know jeb bush was getting advised by paul wolfowitz um and uh, Ted, Ted Cruz, uh, I, I'm a little more unclear on who his team is. Do you, do you know, like, have you heard anything about who some of the more famous or well-known names of, in his like, team are? Or?
1: Well, it's interesting because Ted Cruz originally seemed to want to court the Rand Paul vote, and still yeah. does. He still gives them some talk. But he said recently, which was crazy, he said, Secretary of State John Bolton. That's my pick for Secretary of State that I'm thinking about. Now, no. John Bolton is the absolute epitome of the neoconservative you know, group. I mean, he's, and, and probably so. I don't think he'd deny that. Well, he'd probably deny the term neoconservative because apparently that's what they love to do now, pretend they have some other name. But he was, he, you know, he was not renominated to become U.N. Ambassador. He was appointed without uh, advising its the Senate. And it was a Republican senator that stopped John Bolton from being reappointed, George Voinovich of Ohio, I believe, who stopped him because Bolton was a lunatic. And he was caught on video saying he wanted to end the United Nations,
2: <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> which,
1: you know, was the problem if you're trying to be ambassador. So that's who Ted Cruz publicly announced much during a debate, much to my surprise. I said, did he just say John Bolton? And I checked and he said, yeah. And, you know, so Cruz is playing a very... He doesn't want to be neocons because they weren't popular, post Bush, and he was a Tea Party guy. But he's kind of slowly slithering his way into trying to cut, sort of split the difference. But he's not really one of them, but he looks like he wants to make a deal. And it looks like, finally, after Trump's winning everything and they can't get Jeb Bush, who's already gone, and Marco Rubio is pretty much toast himself... They might try, I mean, some of them look clearly they want to break for the Democrats because they think the party's over. Some may try to do a little rapprochement here with Ted Cruz, who's really conservative, and more importantly, isn't going to let them call anything. Ted Cruz is very, I'm going to be in the driver's seat. He's very, it's very clear no one listens. Now, Ted Cruz doesn't listen to anybody, including his fellow Republicans, which is sort of his reputation.
0: Well, I've definitely so. noticed less, like, think tank language coming out of uh, his talking points and I mean Marco Rubio is just straight think tank uh, like when, and whenever he talks military strategy or foreign policy it's just it seems like verbatim quotes from places like the Institute for Study of War you know American Enterprise Institute um, his plan for defeating Isis his seven-point plan was virtually identical to the the plan that was laid out in a document called defeating Isis released by the Institute for Study of War. In that document, they recommend bringing 30,000 new American ground troops into Iraq. Um, And until recently, Trump was kind of making it seem like he just was going to aerial bomb uh, ISIS into oblivion. Um, he, He seemed to take a more, you know, we need to like get out of this region kind of approach. But now, uh, the last few days, I've started hearing that he's going around saying that he wants to put 20,000 American ground troops back into, I don't know if he said Iraq, but I think Iraq and Syria. And I'm just wondering, where did that come from? Are we already starting to see him trying to make a deal with the neocons, or do you think that means something else?
1: Well, with Trump or with Cruz?
0: With uh, With Trump.
1: Well, he said he said basically they cornered him enough to get him to respond to say if that's what the generals want, then we got to rebuild our country. Unquote. That was his response to it. Okay. So, I don't. I think it's just kind of a. It's just kind of. A, I'm not against using force. I, I think he kind of took it as a. You know, you're not going to get me to say I'm. You know, not bloodthirsty because people, his supporters, despite not liking adventurism, apparently in the Middle East, also want the president. Like when Trump says something very counterintuitive that Reagan used to say, and people love it in the Republican Party, and I don't get it, but they love it, and he says, we're going to be so strong that no one's going to mess with us. And that is very much a blunter style of peace through strength, mm-hmm. which is the Reagan doctrine. Yeah. So people like that idea that it's not that we're not, adv- it's not it can't be, if we're not going to go to war, it's not because we're, you know, these betas they beta males it's because we're (laughs) so strong and powerful that we'll never be challenged because people know we'll kick the rest know, I mean like that's kind of a middle point that Republican voters can get behind they don't want to do Iraq again they don't want to do this imperialism in the the Middle East given what happened but they also don't want to seem like they're weak Mm -hmm. so Trump that middle position you know, our military is so disgraced. It's an embarrassment. Look what we did in Iraq. We got nothing. But we're going to build a strong... We're going to be so strong, no one's going to mess with us. So I think he kind of interpreted the question like, "Well, oh, you know, if we have to go in and kick their ass, we'll go in and kick their ass. But that's not what this is about. <laughs> because we want to be, rebuild jobs here. So it's basically a fear and greed answer. If there's any fear out there, I'll take care of it, and then we've got to come home and make some money. And that was the right answer for his audience. But I, don't, I wouldn't say he's committed to a a troop invasion from what my take on what I saw that in real time. So that was my take on it. Hillary, on the other hand, and I just looked at some of her foreign policy of Michael McFaul is in here.
2: <laughs> oh man.
1: And, you know, uh, Michelle, uh, Flournoy, who's, uh, might be here, might be sec deaf. It's a whole host of Madeline Albright, of course, special place in hell for women who don't support other women. Madeline Albright. Um, She's going to be, there's going to be war. If Hillary is elected, there will be another war. I have no doubt in my mind. She is absolutely, she is probably the biggest hawk in the race outside of Rubio. I mean, she's certainly the most serious hawk. So she has a team of, you know, full-time killers, <laughs> like, like always. So I think if the Libya, there's a great New York Times story showing how she pushed, even against Robert Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, who said, you know, I have two wars going. In Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't want a third one in Libya. And he says it was a 51-49 decision and that Hillary pushed it over the edge. Mm-hmm. And so do all the people, you know, this seems to be the pretty accurate story, that she was the driving force for the Libya intervention. Yeah, And she, and she says, I want to be caught trying, quote-unquote. Yep. Meaning, I'd rather try and fail than not try at all. Now, let me tell you, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of opportunities to be, quote-unquote, caught trying in the Middle East if you really want to get involved. So I have a feeling if she's president, I mean, probably U.S. intervention in Syria, who, kn- you know, who knows what will happen with Iran. I think, it's, I think she's very dangerous. So I don't know how seriously I took Trump's, well, if that's what the generals want, like, flippant response, but I'm pretty sure if Hillary's president, we're, we're, there's going to be a lot of military action
0: yeah to me it That'd just be, it just seems like more vague politicking on his part uh, going along with his strategy this whole time of just you know sort of making it seem like he's everything at once to all these different people but i do think i mean i i have no i don't hold them up to any sort of standard where i i don't think he could be totally um influenced by neocons once he gets into office um i mean the thing about a lot of these neocon foreign policy advisors is they're incredibly good at, at making a logical sounding argument of why we need to send in, you know, more troops or, you know, invade new countries. Um, so I could see even someone like Trump getting suckered into that, um, just based on his, uh, you know, his sort of like his alpha male personality. um, because as if you said like if it's like they can't have it both ways they can't act like you know we need to be this really strong country so strong that nobody would even think of doing anything to us we kick our ass without being willing to use really overwhelming force and being able to use it on, on you know as like a um kind of just on a whim you know like if, if somebody looks at us the wrong way so it's it's a strange contradiction um but i wonder if uh let's say if trump gets the gets the nomination uh what would be would it be a smart strategy for him do you think or do you think he would even use this strategy of attacking hillary from the left i say i hate to say hillary but it's looking that way you know as each day passes here that she is going to get the nomination so do you think that that would be even Something that he could use, like like her votes on the Iraq War. He's already said. Oh that yeah, no, was... no,
1: I have no doubt that if he is an, if it's her and him on a foreign policy debate, he will use the judgment argument, which is you have a lot of experience, so what's your judgment? Look at what what happened in Iraq. Look what happened in Libya. I, he will absolutely go there, and he's kind of free, and he's able to thread the needle where he can attack her for her mistakes. And while also claiming he wants to make the military stronger, which (laughs) you would think that would be hard to do, but that's his position, which was peace through strength. So I I have zero doubt that in the event that they are in a debate, he will hit her for Iraq and Libya and everything else. He might even just, (laughs) to play to the conservative base, not just hit her for Libya, but bring up Benghazi. It's going to be... He's going to hit her with everything, and, and he can hit her. And it, it would actually be consistent, not that he's bound by the laws of consistency, but <laughs> it would be consistent, given his primary message, to hit her on Iraq. He's hit other people on Iraq. He actually trolled Jeb Bush into taking a ridiculous position on Iraq that Jeb Bush had to run back from and probably helped <laughs> destroy his candidacy.
0: Yeah. So, <laughs> I am
1: good I, at, to do with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I can't deny that I would love to see that dynamic play out on a debate stage because, as far as I'm concerned, not once I mean, it's, I I can't even remember uh, a time in my life where a Democratic candidate was ever challenged from the left on a debate stage, except for maybe Dennis Kucinich um, running in the primaries uh. against Obama and and Hillary and. You know, they gave him so little time that it, it barely had any impact. You know, Lincoln yeah. Chaffee, I guess, in theory could have been that in this debate, but no one cared about him. He ha- he did not have the presence or the um sort of the charisma that a politician I think needs to get, you know, elected to be president. But I mean he was the most uh anti hawk out of this out of the whole spread. Um
1: But so- right, but he can't he was he was actually the epitome, I think. I, and he didn't get much time anyway, but of why people don't take that position. Because given his mannerisms and the kind of, his, his sort of presentation of himself, which is very actually apropos for Rhode Island, where he's from, than <laughs> elsewhere, he kind of seemed like weak, need, like this is not a warrior, this is the kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Pond, guy pondering things and thinking about things. He kind of looked too much like a dove and presented himself too much like a dove. Whereas Trump is, at least on some aspects, offering dovish arguments from an incredibly militaristic perspective. And that was one thing he kind of did in the earlier debate that was so interesting. When he didn't make it at all uh, obscure, he said, I'm the most militaristic person on the stage, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> and I was against Iraq. It was a disaster. I oh, didn't was get that- anything.
0: Is that what he actually said? I, didn't, I must not have I'm seen I'm the most
1: one. militaristic person on this stage. Wow. Which, you know, could be read as actually multi, like, meaning he, 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 he was saying he meant that he supported the military, but you could, so, you know, a dovish argument from a militaristic candidate is hard for the system to process. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and yeah. so it, Trump's breaking some of the rules because the, the usual, you know, the, Does not compute. Does not compute. Like no one knows how to deal with it. So it'd be interesting to see that. But yeah, unlike Chafee, he would present as a super hawk. No one's more militaristic. Bomb them, kill them, kill their families. Waterboarding's great, but I don't want to go in the Middle East.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and then he immediately like retracted and said that he'll he'll follow the Geneva Conventions, which is something that Bush didn't even do, and arguably Obama didn't even really do either.
1: You're
0: following the Geneva Conventions. You have to close Gitmo. Exactly. Yeah. So no, it's it's so funny because then it's like then you would think the entire like all these alt-right conservative Trump lovers who on Twitter have like the hat as their avatar, like the little red hat, would be going, "Oh my God, he's going to close Gitmo. He's going to," you know. It's like those people are literally ignoring what that means because I don't think they can process it because it's like the that other side of it is just like. They they need to read into the Rorschach test also in the way that they want to see it, um, and so right.
1: And <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, like a lot of these alt right guys, uh, if you run into them, you know they're very. Um, uh, there's no real nice way to say it, particularly anti Jewish. Oh, are they? And they that's a big time. Well, I mean, it's a lot of. There's a lot of crossover, not all of them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but you know, and then Trump on Israel, they were trying to attack him as anti-Israel, and he said, you know, I have my, my daughter's married to a guy named Jared Kushner, who's a son of a big real estate mogul over here in Jersey, and uh, she converted to Judaism, and I love Jewish people, and, uh, and like, none of these guys cared. Mm-hmm. This guy's just saying, not only did he not have a problem with Israel, but he, his family, his daughter, is now Jewish, and they're like, well, whatever. <laughs> you kind of like That's true, yeah. wait a minute I thought you were really against this what happened?
0: I almost feel so like I, I mean maybe this is me reading into it too much and and just because of how weird things are getting this election but I almost felt like when he was saying that thing about how he volunteered to be the grandmaster in like the Israeli parade or something do you remember how he kept saying that? Yeah yeah yeah, was, I, yeah, yeah. I felt I felt like he was <sighs> I mean, this may sound crazy of me to say, but I almost felt like he was saying that, still in a weird way, like courting anti Semitic white supremacist people by almost like acting like that was the greatest thing that he ever did for Israel when it's actually almost like a really tokenistic not you know, like not important gesture at all.
1: (laughs) It's completely meaningless. It doesn't mean, I mean they had probably invited him because they wanted a celebrity, I mean it doesn't yeah i was i was i I was head of the new year's Macy's Day for it's so silly don't tell me, I don't love america
0: yeah and and then he and then he acted like well, and they also told me it was really dangerous to go there, and I still went there like it's I don't think anybody who's like really pro israel or or really into their Judaism would would find that statement they wouldn't like what he said it's it sounds almost like he's brushing it off and just Like, he doesn't really care. I mean, to me, that's how it comes off. And even his statement about his, um, you know, his, his uh, was it his daughter or his son-in-law converting his daughter to Judaism? Or do I have it the other way around?
1: No, yeah, his son-in-law and his daughter, Ivanka.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, that, I mean, almost like that, to me, could be interpreted. I could see certain anti-Semites being, like, interpreting that as somehow, like, a favorable... Do you get what I'm saying? Is this making any sense? Like, like it
1: could kind of like it's kind of like you know. Don't tell me I'm racist. I have some black friends. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. I mean, I was head of a parade. I let them. I was head of a parade. What more do you want?
0: I could have been killed for standing next to this Jewish guy, and I did it anyways. It's like it's it's a strange it's a strange dance he's doing, but it's um. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, I'm kind of. Uh, I feel like we kind of exhausted it's, all the. I know so, <laughs> it's,
1: it's such a crazy election. I don't, I've you know followed him for a while. I can't. I don't. Trump is so he's mixing everything up. I kind of love it to be honest. But
2: <laughs> yeah, there's
1: so many, so many. Yeah, the, the appeal. Like it's such a blatant, like weak, superficial appeal, and. But what Trump understands is a real substantive appeal. What would that even mean to a television audience?
0: Well, we'll see, I guess, won't we, at APEC coming soon. Oh, that's going to be... <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> with Hillary. I can't wait for They're that. They're headlining together. It's like they've almost already chosen who the two front are. I, I can are. I cannot imagine what he's going to say. I think he'll have to have someone... That's maybe when the neocon influence will start to show... More within his campaign. I mean, I could almost see him getting one of those guys to just write a speech for him, just to get out of the way, you know. I, but I don't know. It's totally unknown. Oh, but I
1: think he played them. I think he played them perfectly with what he said. I mean, he looked, and he actually. I. This is the craziest thing. I have so many people on the left I love who are these, you know, Palestinian rights supporting people, and he kind of fell for this, which was sad to watch, to be honest, because I respect them, but. He said, you know, I'm gonna to try to make peace. I'm gonna to try to that's why I'm gonna to try to be neutral. And I kept attacking him for not being pro-Israel, look, I'm the most pro-Israel guy. <laughs> I went to this parade, my daughter said <laughs> But it's a t- but it's the toughest deal in the world. It was kind of like it was like his an ego thing. Like, I wanna make the toughest deal in the world. And you know what? It might be impossible, but I want to give it a chance. And they all hyped it up like that was a very controversial thing. But when you actually unpack that He's saying he's very pro-Israel, and he's going to try to make a deal, but if not, he's just going to side with Israel. That is the most, like, milquetoast position every president has always said they wanted a deal.
0: Of course. So Even he Bush.
1: Takes this, yeah, they take this very aggressive, he takes this very aggressive rhetoric, and that, the aggression of it, the visceral nature of it, pisses people off. But when you actually look at it a day later, it's not really that difficult of a, that's you know, not really that tough of a position. I want to try to make a peace deal. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah! Rubble, <laughs> rubble! Rub, 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 I <laughs> I mean, what? Everybody supports that, including people at AIPAC. Will say, of course, they want a peace deal. As long as he doesn't spell out the terms that are, would be unfavorable to them, they're for peace too. Yeah, people say they're against it. So I don't think he's actually dug himself in a hole at all with those people at AIPAC who support Israel. I think he says I'm for a peace deal, and I think they all, at least on the surface, will say I'm for a peace deal too. Of course. He said, he said, I met some very tough Jews in New York, <laughs> very tough guys, really tough business guys, the toughest business guys you've ever met. And you know what they tell me? They want peace in Israel, too. Well, of course. <laughs> Who says they don't? So I think his position is a lot of very visceral, hot rhetoric that irritates people, his opponents. But when you actually look at it, it's a very like, oh, yeah, everyone wants a peace deal. Sure. <laughs> yeah, of course. Why wouldn't tough guys or not the tough guys? not want a peace deal of peace in Israel. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. So I don't think he's in that much trouble. I think they're probably are going to try to get a, get him, but he'll just give in. That's the whole thing. He's not exactly. really, that's what I was Just give in.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess what I mean by they'll have like some neocon or write a speech for him. I don't even mean like a literal neocon from like the PNAC camp. I, I guess I just mean like someone who could put in all the right language, you know, to appeal to that audience. And, and, uh, And I think I I could see him pulling that off brilliantly if he does that. But if he just goes up there and wings it, I'm actually kind of hoping he does that. He goes up there and just kind of does his normal thing. Um, It seems risky if he does that. So I guess that's why my thought goes to he's going to have someone for maybe outside of his regular camp help him with this. Um, Oh, yeah. And
1: but I don't think he's. I don't. I think he's very. Uh, I think he's actually did not take a tough. It seems in the moment a tough position because everyone on stage, in order to kind of pander to uh, you know pro-Israel audience, which is not just Jews, it's also Christian Zionists, it's also Christian conservatives,
2: mm-hmm.
1: are all going over the top to say no deal. The Palestinians have made it impossible to deal. The pa- we'll never do a deal with them. And all he's really saying, when you actually get down to it, is. I want to try to make a deal. Nobody opposes that. That's what I mean. I'm saying these Palestinian activists that I know are, you know, are sympathetic to Palestinian because you know, They're saying, Trump, why has tr- Trump made a good point there? He's made no point one way or the other. He's simply not taken a ridiculous position and just put, really pushed a lot of energy under that moderate position. Exactly. We're trying to make a peace deal.
0: It's like his emph- emphatic tone of voice and the language that he's using makes a milk toast totally generic position sound like something interesting and captivating. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah.
1: That's, that's that's good marketing.
0: Yep. No, it's. I mean, then that's why that's where his business sense and probably this sort of like you know quasi business hypnosis technique he's been using is has, has been so successful. Um, yeah, But uh, I agree. But yeah, I guess uh, we should probably wrap it up now. I mean, we've almost almost been... No, it's been over two hours, actually. Um, okay. Is there, uh, is there anything else we should end on? Like, what did we miss?
1: I know, we talked about... See, look, Trump even got us. We're talking about Trump most of the time. <laughs> this is a,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe we should end on just, like, the future of what his foreign policy team is going to look like. Uh because he hasn't announced it yet, and I guess he's claiming that he's going to announce it really soon. Um, uh, so, any any idea who who who's going to be like the main figurehead of that that group of advisors? Or
1: well, t- he did announce that Senator Sessions, Jeff Sessions, okay, is going to be the head of the committee or the head of the group.
0: Foreign policy or foreign policy? Oh, okay, okay. I didn't realize so, that.
1: Yeah, Sessions endorsed him. I mean, he won Sessions over with immigration, but he's, and Sessions is not—I don't know—particularly known for foreign policy. Although he's, you know, he's mostly known for, I think, for judicial stuff, if I can remember correctly. But so Sessions is going to pick them. He did have some people he claimed were advising him, but upon further investigation, they weren't really on board. So I think Sessions will find some. I think I will probably find some more conservative-leaning people or maybe some retired general who wants to get on TV, you know, to get him. And I think if he... Plus, I think if Trump... I kind of feel like they're playing the waiting game. If Trump wins on Tuesday, I think a lot of people who might have... You know, there's a lot of people condemning Trump. There's a lot of people saying nothing. Mm-hmm. And if Trump... It really looks like he's going to get the nomination... I think some of the establishment probably more conservative than neoconservative because remember there is that tension will probably come to his side. I wouldn't be, you know, heritage foundation. I imagine, I know there's, there's all sorts of places that sessions I'm sure would know where to pull people from. So I would, so sessions, it probably looks like it's being, it looks like the actual experts are being delegated out to sessions. Whether Trump will take any of their advice is a completely open question. How relevant they'll be. Yeah. That's that's the real question. So, uh, but I imagine they'll put some more faces out there after Tuesday. That'd be my guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think regardless of how this all shakes out, the neocons are gonna they're gonna back every horse that they think has a possible chance of actually getting in there. And even if you know Trump is the nom- nominee, they're gonna try as hard as they can to still get in there and have influence. Um, It's just a matter of if Trump will allow that.
1: Yeah, okay. He is saying something about he's going to announce a team soon. Yeah. So (laughs) my guess is it's whoever Sessions. I guess he's kind of delegating that to Sessions, so I guess Sessions will pick some people who I imagine are willing to be on board. I mean, Trump has a lot of, I would just say this that's kind of interesting. Trump has a lot of people, spokespeople, that I've never seen before. Like, on, they go on CNN to do his press. I guess some of them work for him privately. Mm-hmm. Some of them used to be on The Apprentice. Like, it's Omarosa's out there <laughs> from The Apprentice. Oh, God. I don't, I don't know <laughs> what exactly... So I, I, he, they, he may, they may bring some faces in to kind of uh, class to join up. Mm-hmm. But I think he's going to stick with whatever public strategy he has but yeah that would be interesting to see should he ever achieve the office is he going to just go okay fine bring on the old bring all the old boys back in which case it would be extremely inconvenient for all these neocons to have denounced him so thoroughly although he brought in Chris Christie he brought in Ben Carson who he said terrible things about so apparently he doesn't mean it but, yeah. so I don't, I don't know if he's so forgiving the other way though
0: no, and I mean, it, when you're talking about his spokespeople, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag, and there's a lot of strange people that seem to speak for him. I was just uh, in an earlier podcast. I was going into this the weirdness of how Roger Stone, while he's not officially a spokesperson for the Trump campaign, he appears to be um, by all you know. If you look at any of his appearances, that he's actually running some kind of flank uh, to try to plug into like. Some of the conspiracy movement, like voting block for Donald Trump, um, like Infowars had has had Ro- Roger Stone on almost every week for the past few months. Um, uh, essentially, te- you know, all the Infowars listeners are, are now under the impression that Trump is their candidate and Roger Stone is filling their heads with this idea that. Trump knows what really happened on nine 11, uh, that Trump, that, uh, Trump knows, the, um, you know, that the Bush family is involved with bin Laden. He knows about the Bush, you know, his criminal past and just on and on and on saying all these things that Trump is not saying at all. Um, <laughs> giving the impression that it's like he, it's another one of those things where he's, he's trying to, I think it's a deliberate strategy and it's actually very effective. And, uh, you know, there's some there. There is some weirdness there. Like, you know, Ron Paul uh, was definitely. Yeah, but, uh, okay. Oh, I was, I was just going to say also that Katrina, um, Katrina Pearson, the spokesperson for Trump. Um, you know, she even <laughs> dabbled, dabbled there at one point. She tweeted in 2012, "9/11 inside job?" Question mark. <laughs> so it's interesting that I think that at first it might have seemed like, oh, you know, maybe this like sort of truther more like Infowars base is just moving to Donald Trump just kind of organically because that's where that energy is going. But I almost feel like there might be a deliberate sort of uh, under-the-radar strategy that they are using to target these certain voters. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. Because it's just strange. (laughs)
1: Okay, Okay, well, I should say that (laughs) <laughs> with, I mean, the, yeah, the spokeswoman, that, that's one of the people I'm talking about I've never seen before, or Jeffrey Lord, who uh-huh. apparently worked for Reagan, who's on CNN all the time. Roger Stone is a different story. I, I know Roger Stone. He's a very, I, I would take, he's a very smart guy, very clever. He was a Reagan Reaganite uh, He worked for Reagan. He's a tough guy. He helped take down Elliot Spitzer here in New York by uh, linking up with his uh, call girl, Ashley Dupree so he helped take down Governor Spitzer.
0: Oh, I didn't realize and he, he did. was involved in that. Interesting.
1: Oh, yeah, he was deeply involved in that, and he was paid to do so. Um, I can't say, allegedly paid to do so by people on Wall Street, including Ken Langone, who was a big uh, Wall Street guy, Nick Rass. So all these guys who got their feathers ruffled by uh, <laughs> Attorney General Spitzer. And wow. so, you know, Roger Stone's a killer. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. But he's also, in his sort of, I guess... Uh, second life here out of the establishment kind of enjoying his renegade status he's written a bunch of conspiracy books one on the jfk assassination where he blamed lyndon johnson and i don't think he believes it personally that's now he might say he believes every word of it but he is a he is a very talented troublemaker and (laughs) i would just be very cautious about how I think now, is he making a strategy in coordination with the Trump campaign to try, to try to win over voters that the Infowars people represent, particularly in the southern states? I think that is very possible because he, his firing, quote-unquote, from the Trump organization is a very interesting firing. So uh, I'm not so sure he's out, but it is interesting to see that he has moved the Infowars crowd completely away. Now, Rand Paul's out anyway. Yeah. But even before that happened, they were moving towards Trump, and, and now they're stoking Trump. Now, is that a meeting of the minds? Is it the same demographic? I don't know, but absolutely with Roger Stone, I would not put it past him that he has some unspoken or perhaps spoken agreement with the Trump campaign to move those people in their direction. He's, for someone who's out, quote-unquote, he's doing a lot of work to help Donald Trump get elected, And important to remember, he wrote a book that's been instrumental for the right and for the Trump campaign called The Clinton's War on Women. And the first time Hillary Clinton attacked Donald Trump, she said he's sexist. And Donald Trump's response was to use Roger Stone's book to say, hey, don't call me sexist. Your husband's a rapist. Yep. And amazing to me, not only did he help with the right, but liberals who are social justice warriors, campus left, whatever, bought into it, took it, took it, took it, and said, you know, under current standards, Bill Clinton would be considered a rapist because the new onus is on men to prove that they didn't do it or something along those lines. And it got traction. So you saw Vox, the Democratic media, No, you know, Vox is owned in part by Marcos of Daily Kos. Demo- I mean, couldn't get more Democratic establishment than that. You see all these guys say, they took the line. Now, part of that is the media needs feed. Mm-hmm. It needs to keep churning. So, you know, hey, any story. But the fact that he was able to position it that way, and it was based completely on Roger Stone's book. So I, I, that makes me think that maybe they're a little bit, maybe he, Roger Stone isn't completely out. So I don't. I, so your theory about, I mean, I, I was taking issue. I was kind of scoffing at the idea that Roger Stone really believed the conspiracy theories.
2: But the idea that he
1: would be using Trump, he would be working for Trump and attracting that crowd to vote for Trump, I think that's very possible. And based on the way Stone is behaving, I would absolutely volunteer to accept that they're not on the outs, that he may have been fired, quote, unquote. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, 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 yeah, I don't I I I can't say if he believes these theories or not, but he's definitely saying things that are very um you know, uh if I was an InfoWars fan, I would be very captivated by some of the things that he's saying. I mean, he's literally saying things that Alex Jones like when Ron Paul was running in in two thousand eight, Alex Jones was even trying to sort of clean up Ron Paul's image by not strongly associating Ron Paul with trutherism, for example, like I guess Alex Jones and the Paul camp probably had learned at that time that that was a strategy that was going to be used against him, which it was one of the first opening questions in the Fox news debates was, will you, it was kind of like the David Duke thing with Trump. It's like, will you denounce all these people who support you who think nine 11 is an inside job? And Ron Paul said he would, you know, very unequivocally at the debate. Um, but i think that th- it was it was very strange i mean i don't know if you've seen this roger stone interview but i mean it was kind of like he was throwing out more than a hint saying that donald trump is the candidate of 911 truth and to finally like figure out what happened this is the man this is like our only hope um and that's a very strong emotional message to send out to those audiences and uh you know I just think it's gonna have a very powerful effect that um that I think may a lot of people aren't looking at right now. Um, maybe because of you know, that Ron that, that camp that went to Ron Paul never really got this far. But I do think it's it's part it's it's a way of explaining in part at least where some of that passionate energy has come from. You know, maybe even just a small yeah. part of it, but it's a very, very passionate uh sector of, of the United States voting bloc, I think still
1: well plus it's a it's a counter narrative so if you buy into the conspiratorial worldview that alex jones and i have nothing against divorce personally i just attribute things to incompetence not conspiracies but if you buy into that worldview then when you see a bunch of people disrupting a trump protest you don't think this is the conscience of america finally being awakened right you think this is a the setup these are government agents these are moveon.org. You know, you really, Oh yeah. the Trump narrative it, it plays, it, it, it meets, it intersects, it dances with, it parallels, it, it has a, some sort of intercourse with the conspiratorial worldview.
2: And yeah.
1: Trump went on Alex Jones' show, but he hasn't done it a lot. But maybe Roger Stone is that conduit because it offers a counter explanation for real, it's kind of this, like the stuff we were talked about, the spike. Like, well, what really happened with these, like, the neocons. Like, like it was a, you know what I mean, a, a counter narrative. Well, this is a. Ca- they offer a counter narrative to all the stuff. So Trump's getting all this opposition, is it because he's saying things that actually offend people, which is the case in many instances? No, it's because they are out to get him because he's going to tell the truth about 9/11 or tell the truth about. This. So there is a. I think there are a group of people who, because they're so committed to that worldview. Are, are open to a, a narrative that will serve, that Stone, I'm sure, is happy to deliver, where, you know, the opposition to Trump isn't sincere opposition. Yeah. It's all, you know, counter, it's all, you know, what's white is black, what's, you know, this, these people disrupting his protest, these are government agents.
0: They're communists, so they're social justice right, warriors. Um,
1: right, which, you know, plays into, you know, Glenn Beck ripped off Alex Jones every day for years
0: yeah <laughs> which so, you, is, know,
1: you know this is
0: the Soros and the people you know which is hilarious to me that now Glenn Beck is having a freak out too because it's now he he now he hates Trump, um so it's interesting to see that that a huge split. It's where like at one point Infowars. that's another interesting fallout from this, and we can wrap this up soon, but I wanted to just quickly mention how there was a period of time where it seemed like Breitbart's drudge. Even Free Beacon and Infowars were almost kind of in a way all on, on the same page to some degree. And then, you know, uh, we started to see maybe them coming more into their own. Like Breitbart became a little bit more of like an alt right um, kind of outlet. Free Beacon became, you know, is more obviously like the neocon outlet. Um, Drudge. Was kind of always sort of morphing back and forth, and then at a certain point, Drudge had announced 2013 is the year of Alex Jones, or I think it was 2013.
1: Um, yeah, and then Media Matters did the whole video on Alex Jones, which they're still upset about, which was a hit job, but still funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then it and it broke it. I mean, it broke the dam as far as I'm concerned for Infowars to become a mainstream, legitimate sort of conservative outlet. I've even heard that it is the third largest uh third most trafficked or gets the most traffic of any conservative website on the internet um ranks third which would have sounded insane if i heard that 5 years ago but now it actually seems very likely to me um and hmm. and it's well, oh sorry go ahead
1: i was going to say if i remember if i recall correctly alex jones actually does say he's a paleo conservative or libertarian so it wasn't so... I agree that it seems like... I don't, I don't ever remember the Free Beacon being like that. I always thought it was this... Because it was set up by lobbyists, I always thought it was more establishment-oriented, even if it was to, even if it was kind of against the establishment, it was always like the loyal opposition. Yeah. It wasn't fringy. Um, but yeah, I always thought Jones was a little conservative, and then it looked like, because of his audience, he was all this constant outsider... And then what happened was the, the media has been disrupted and he's bringing in the numbers. And what politicians slowly but surely tried to do, breaking ground with the Paul family, I think, is they've approached him because he's where the voters are. And the Tea Party looks a lot like you know, an anti-Bilderberg protest. It looks a lot like this, you know a, all these very you know, Nazi imagery and all this stuff. And I don't have to put these people down. I'm just saying... I think he's kind of won a media war, in among the conservative, among the conservative groups. Although I think there's a lot of people on the left who, for some reason, like Infowars. I'm not quite sure. I guess because of the anti-establishment stuff. But I think he's—they've approached him. They've wanted to get close to him. Yeah. And he's got millions and millions of viewers. I mean, I remember someone sent me a clip where he interviewed Tim Russert, and apparently interviewed ended badly, Russell just hung up on him. But, you know, someone's saying, "Hey, this guy's got a huge audience. He might sell some books. Hey, this guy's got a huge audience. He might mobilize some voters. He might get some donations to my campaign." So I think it, what's happened is they've all approached him because of his media. I don't think he's reached out to them. I think they're starting to approach him. So I would not be surprised if he was number 3 or, or in the top 10 at least because I think the media has changed around him. In a sense, he was kind of an innovator.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, think- I. don't know.
1: I mean, that's it's Not an insult, you know. He was on the cutting edge. He, you know, he built that website, and so I think they've come to him. The fact that a major campaign now they still won't clearly do it directly, but the fact that that's why your theory of maybe there's a conduit with Roger Stone is not so. I mean, if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have said that's ridiculous. A major presidential campaign? Yeah. Dealing with Alex Jones? That's insane. But now I'm not so sure. And that's not just because of the nature of the Trump campaign. That's the nature of how Alex Jones's influence has expanded.
0: It has expanded so much that even uh, Michael Savage uh, is kind of like bud- buddies with him now. And that was something I would have never seen. I mean, I would have been very shocked if someone told me that four or five years ago, but they're very much on the same page. And uh, it's so you're starting to see even a split within that sort of more fringy right-wing culture. And I guess the only reason I brought this up is because, you know, even websites like Breitbart now are not going along with any of the real finger wagging or shaming of Donald Trump voters. They're one of the holdouts. Infowars is definitely one of the holdouts Michael Savage, you know Savage Nation, one of the holdouts. We've seen more fence sitting by people like Rush Limbaugh. He hasn't. He, he's kind of more. I, it seems like he's trying to play both sides. Sean Hannity is Sean kind Hannity, of yeah, doing that a little totally bit too trying to play both sides. Although Sean Hannity seems like he's got he's had a little evolution where maybe now he's a little more of a Trump supporter, and it's kind of interesting to watch all that fracturing uh, take place. And I just, I guess. It's just something I didn't really expect to see, but it, I mean, looking back on it, it almost should have been, in, I mean, it should have seemed inevitable that that would have happened. Because you sort of had, you know, the coalescing of some of these narratives, but as as they were in a race, I guess, to get more extreme and more anti-Republican Party, you know, more anti-RINO, um, you know, even some of them are saying like cuck now. I mean, which is ridiculous that the term cuckolding has become like a political... Insult. I don't even think most yeah, people know. even know.
1: I was amazed by that one too. I was like, "Is that what I
0: think it means?" Do they know the etymology of what that word means? Yeah, it was like I—I I mean, if they knew what it meant, I mean, I see so many like Christian conservative people using that term now. It's like, wow, that's a pretty—I um, don't know.
1: Plus, there's racial overtones to it too. That are really troubling if you.
0: Oh, I didn't talking- even. I did not even oh. consider that. That's oh, yeah, it's all
1: about. It's all about a. Black man. Yeah, it's all about a black man. You're letting it. That's that's kind of the uh, no.
0: Wow, no, that's, I, that's that makes actually yeah, a lot of sense. I didn't right, even think about that. The all
1: right loves it for that reason. Wow, among other reasons. So they're like, yeah, these are these race traders. Here's the only issue with that, and I, uh, I'm not, <laughs> I have no expertise in this area, but it's it's always used as a negative. If it were so commonplace, I mean, it's always used. as you're a right. Negative, yeah, and it's always has a racial over. Not always as a racial, over, it's always using a negative though. It's like you're like you're being punked. You're a you're a beta, you're whatever, because you're you know you're being. These are conservatives. They go to the, they go to DC and they betray our values with the black president. <laughs> that's kind of the. This is. I mean, this is their imagery. I did not introduce this term, so. Um, no, that's, that's totally kind of the way I read it.
0: That's totally not interesting. like a
1: normal thing.
0: I I did not even factor in the black angle, but it makes perfect sense. Oh yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's there. Wow. Well, maybe that's the best way to end the. There you go. I'm with that. Today. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was great great talking with you, Daniel. Um, and where can people find uh, find your writings and um, and the stuff you're doing right now?
1: Uh, shadowproof.com is the website where a lot of the writing comes on. If you want to see a lot of running commentary and some bad jokes, at DanisWright, D-A-N-S- W-R-I-G-H-T on Twitter. I mean, I mostly write a shadow proof. So, there you go.
0: Fantastic. Well, that wraps up uh, Media Roots Radio for today. And uh, thank you for listening.